0: Hey guys, this is Grace, and I just have a few things before we get started this week. First of all, we just wanted to let you guys know that we are using a new recording software, so the sound in this episode might be a little bit hit or miss, but we don't anticipate this being a problem for our future episodes. Next, we wanted to let you know about another podcast, which we had the pleasure of being guests on. The podcast is called Watching Netflix Without You, and we have their trailer here, so give it a listen. And lastly, we would just like to thank The Vaginance Podcast, who requested this week's episode. All right, guys, let's get started. Hey there. It's Heather from the Watching Netflix Without You podcast. Did you know that there are over 1200 Netflix original feature films and documentaries? And that number is only growing. So I've made it my mission to watch as many as I possibly can. Then with a delightful guest or guests, disclaimer, more often than not my brother Ryan. We spend an episode rating, reviewing, and discussing a film at length. The first half of every episode is spoiler-free for those who haven't seen it yet. And in the second half, after a very clear spoiler warning, we dive into it. And that's really about it. You can listen to Watching Netflix Without You on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Introducing Vaginance, a podcast for folks who want to have deeper conversations about money and life in the new roaring 20s. We truly believe everyone would have better sex if we talked about sex and better finances if we actually talked about finances. This podcast is hosted by four women on different paths to financial freedom, and we firmly believe that we are all in this together.
1: Vaginance, yeah, we know it's a bold name easy to remember and easy to find on your favorite podcast player. We hope to hear from you. Take a listen. I love Tom Hanks so much. Like he's a good actor and I can disassociate Tom Hanks from who he's playing. But every time I see him, I just love him. Like, do you remember when like Tom Hanks caught COVID and all of a sudden people started taking it seriously? Yeah. I love the man. Hi, everyone. I'm Bolton. And I'm Grace. And welcome to Crime Scenes, a true crime movie podcast. What movie are we recapping today, Grace? Today we are doing Catch Me If You Can, and this was requested by Vaginance Podcast. If you would like to make a request, you can do so by sending us a DM through any of our social media accounts. We are at Crime Scenes Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also make a movie request on our website, www.crimescenespodcast.com. All right, let's get into the movie and the real story.
2: Are you a real life pilot?
3: I sure am, little lady. The jump seat is open. It's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again? Dr. Connors
2: to the ER, Dr. Connors to the ER.
3: This is irrefutable evidence that the defendant is lying.
4: Special Agent, hand Ready, FBI. Hello, Carl. You're gonna get caught. It's like Vegas. The house always
5: wins. Some that's run around the country posing as a pilot. Call him the James Bond of the sky. Hello, Pusher. This is by far the best date I have ever been on. He's a kid. That's why he doesn't have a record. 30 milligrams of codeine every
4: four hours. Do you concur? I concur.
3: Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur?
6: Concur with what, sir? <laughs>
4: Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you your son has forged checks. I have a payroll check here I'd like to cash.
7: I'm working part time at the church now. Just tell me how
5: much yours and I'll pay you back.
4: One point three million dollars.
3: I'll be choosing eight young ladies to be a part of Pan <laughs> future stewardess
5: program.
4: South America, Australia, Singapore. These are so perfect the bankers even know the difference. What do you want? To apologize. You didn't call to apologize, did you? You have no one else to call. <laughs>
7: For your son, I would never give up my son if you were a father you'd know. Stop chasing me. I can't stop. It's my job. You see these people staring at you? They keep peeking over their shoulders, wondering where you're going tonight. Where are you going, Frank? Don't tell me not to fly, I've simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Don't bring around a cloud
4: of terrain on my parade. Up. we're gonna let him get away. No, oh, Carl, you let him get away.
6: Nobody had a better my Merry Christmas!
4: I'm getting close, huh? You will go to prison. You're gonna have to catch me.
1: You can watch this movie if you've got a subscription to Amazon Prime, Paramount Plus, Hulu, Netflix, and Peacock. Or you can rent it for $2.99 on YouTube TV, Google Play, Vudu, or rent it for $3.99 on Apple TV. So basically, there are a lot of places you can get this movie, and I highly recommend watching it. It's really good. And also just a little bit about the people that requested this movie, The Vaginans Podcast. They had a promo right before that you also heard. We just wanted to give a special shout out and thank you to them for making a request and doing a promo swap with us. This movie is starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, and... Natalie Bay. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, and it was written by Jeff Nathanson. And the film is based on the autobiography written by Frank Abagnale Jr., who before his 19th birthday claimed he successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan-American World Airways pilot, a doctor, and a prosecutor. Sources for this episode are the movie itself, Catch Me If You Can, made in 2002. The autobiography, also titled Catch Me If You Can, written by Frank Abagnale Jr. with Stan Redding as a co-author. And this was originally published in 1980. And then there are several other sources that we used. One of the main ones is a book called The Greatest Hoax on Earth. Catching the Truth While We Still Can by Alan C. Logan with a foreword by a woman named Paula Parks and a guy named Mark Zinder. And I point them out because those two people that wrote this forward are going to end up becoming pretty important to the story. And this entire book is going to be really important. So I will frequently refer back to this book and I'm just going to refer back to it referring to the author like Logan says this or Logan says that because he has a lot to say. And then there's some other articles and podcasts that we also looked at. Normally I just put the sources on there just to show that I'm not making it up and I'm not stealing anybody else's information, but <laughs> in this particular case, I highly recommend going through at least on the ones that we starred and actually looking at them because you can see for yourself just how much of this story is a lie and how much Frank Abagnale got away with for so long, including the fact that he literally tricked major people in Hollywood to make a movie about him yeah this is our most meta episode ever which brings me to a few things about this movie before we start and I've said it or alluded to it a couple times but I hate to break it to everyone everything Frank Abagnale Jr. says in his autobiography and that is in the movie is a lie there have been different journalists throughout the years as early as 1978 that have noticed and pointed out and written about the fact that a lot of the things he says are not true and there's documentation to show they're not true. And most people seem to think that it's just because of technology and the fact that a lot of these journalists that did write these articles calling it out, Frank Abagnale, they were local papers, so the media just did not get out fast or far like it would today with technology that we have now. But basically what Frank would do is he would keep a low profile for a little bit when these articles came out and then after a while he was able to keep going and spreading this information about himself and the reason I mentioned earlier that this book by Alan C. Logan is so important is because this is really the first compilation of all this information showing that what he said is a lie and it was published last year it was published in 2020 So it's got all of the receipts in it to show what really went down. That's what I was going to say. Logan has all of his sources listed as footnotes and everything. So I really recommend
0: checking out his book.
1: So as we are going through the movie, just be aware that we will recap the movie like we always do. And we'll make reference to Frank's autobiography because that's what the movie is based on. However, pretty much unless we say this actually happened, it did not happen. And you see gradually that a lot of these stories that Frank made up, essentially, he did get inspiration from real people and real things. So we're going to be tying those pieces of information in as we go. And I still love this movie. I still think it's great. But I think Logan points out in his book, it's just important to keep in mind that this was not a victimless crime, that Frank was more than just a con man. He actually really hurt people. So without any further ado, let's get started on calling Frank out on his bullshit. Let's do it. So this movie starts and it has one of the best intros. It's all animated and it's basically just showing the plot points of the movie as all the credits go by. And it reminded me of the movie 101 Dalmatians, which if you have not seen that, you must. I don't care if you are a single male living by yourself. That movie is fantastic. But it has kind of the same feel. It's really good music and really cool animation. And one thing about the music that I didn't know at all, it is done by John Williams, who is the same guy That does all of the Star Wars music. And I'm a big Star Wars fan, which my family makes fun of me for, so um, thanks, guys. But the intro goes on for a little bit, and then we finally get to our first scene.
7: Thank you very much, and welcome to To Tell The Truth. Our first guest, he's made a career out of being the most outrageous imposter that we've ever come across on this show, and you're going to see what I mean.
0: Yeah. So our first scene, we are a viewer watching the game show to tell the truth. And this was a game show that ran from 1956 to 1978. And the basics of the show is that you're going to have somebody's story who's the central character. And then you're going to have two imposters and then these panelists guess who is actually the central character that the story is based on. Basically, the two imposters are allowed to lie when the panelists ask them questions, but the central character has to tell the truth. So what happens is we meet all three men claiming to be Frank Abagnale Jr. And one of them is Leonardo DiCaprio.
5: Number one, what is your name, please? My name is Frank William Abagnale.
3: Number two. My name is Frank William Abagnale. Number three. My
6: name is Frank William Abagnale.
0: This is a cool scene because they actually used snippets of the real episode of this to tell the truth where Frank Abidnell Jr. appeared on and then put Leo into it. So basically, we're going to get a preview of Frank's whole story.
4: I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over two million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states, and I did it all before my 19th birthday.
0: According to Logan's book, he says this is probably the only episode of To Tell the Truth where all three people can be proven to have been lying when the panelists ask them questions. Because as we said, basically Frank Abagnale Jr.'s whole story is a lie. It's a con about being a con. But in real life, he ended up winning $500 because he fooled all the panelists, which is really small potatoes compared to what he'll ultimately make off of this story. But his appearance on this game show was what got him onto Tonight with Johnny Carson and some other national media outlets and in the 70s if you were on tonight with Johnny Carson you were like immediately a star you you could go from a nobody to like everybody in the country knowing who you are so that was a really big deal and it added credibility to his story because people were like Carson wouldn't have this guy on if it wasn't true right so then as part of his story he says that the man who caught him is Carl Hanratty number two I find this all very fascinating who was it that finally caught you
3: His name was Carl Hanratty.
1: Yes. So the real person that Carl Hanratty is based on is FBI Special Agent Joseph Shea. And he is played by Tom Hanks. And once we hear from Frank on this game show that the person that ultimately caught him is Carl Hanratty, we jump to a scene where we are... Going back in time to France. It is Christmas Eve 1969, according to some on screen text, and it is pouring down rain.
4: Hand ready. Oh, oh, well. I yes. am Kyle Hand ready. the FBI for the United States of America. Okay. We oui. 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 Yeah. I have orders. The American
1: prisoner, Alex put in the and poor Carl is trying so hard to communicate with these French police and they do not speak the same language. And I felt for him in this moment because I've mentioned this before. My <laughs> husband is not from the U.S. He's from Europe. And every time we fly there, we always have to do a layover in an airport. And I have gotten in almost more fights from just trying to buy a <laughs> bottle of water because we cannot understand each other. And I fully admit that I'm the dumb American that can't speak the other language, but I really felt bad for Carl here. (laughs) Basically, he's trying to get these police to tell him where Frank is. He's trying to explain to them he has orders to come pick Frank up. And once they establish that Frank is who he's looking for, these French police take him to this extremely old shitty jail. And there's just a hole in this wall. They put a stool up next to it. They look at Carl and they say, You sit here.
7: You do not open the door. You do not pass him anything to the hole.
1: And Carl looks through this hole and he realizes that on the other side of this wall is actually a cell. And Frank Abagnale is in this cell and he is completely unshaven. He's coughing. He's sick. It is just horrible conditions.
4: You know, I got a little bit of a cold myself.
1: And according to Frank's book, he did spend time in a French prison and he claims it was for six months. And he says that the conditions were actually like this, that he went in weighing around 198 pounds and he came out weighing 109 pounds. He had no access to light. They did not give him anywhere to go to the bathroom. So there was sewage everywhere. He says it was fucking awful. In Mm -hmm. reality, he was in prison both in France and in Sweden. He was only there for four months. And based on the numbers he's giving about how much weight he lost, the author Logan did some math and realized that Frank is about the same height and weight as this other famous guy by the name of Bobby Sands, who actually did do a hunger strike. And he lost that amount of weight by literally eating no food. And by that time, he was blind and he died. So it's highly unlikely that... He lost that much weight and was starved that much in that period of time. And also, when he was ultimately taken from France, he was not picked up by anybody from the U.S. He was taken automatically to Sweden and dealt with in Sweden. And the victim of his ploys in Sweden had to see him in court and said he looks the exact same. He didn't look skinny or anything like that. So it can't necessarily be proven that he was treated badly, but based on people who saw him at the time... He wasn't treated as badly as he leads us to believe. And the other thing is, Frank would later claim in an interview that Steven Spielberg was able to go to France and look up his records and see that he actually did lose that much weight. But when the author tried to do that, the people at this prison were like, that's considered a health record. And we do not share that. We would not share that with you. We would not share that with Steven Spielberg. That's not something we would give away. Right.
0: And we're going to see Frank uses that name dropping to add credibility to his story.
1: Yeah, so moving right along, Carl is trying to read Frank his extradition rights, and Frank is not listening at all. Frank,
4: I'm <clears throat> here to read the articles of extradition according to the European Court for Human Rights. Article one extradition shall be granted in respect of offenses punishable under the laws that provide deprivation of liberty and the detention order for the maximum period of at least one year or by a severe penalty. Help me. Frank, stop it. nothing actually going fool me do you
1: and he's telling him to help him and then all of a sudden he faints and carl has to call the french police and they're like get him out of there he just fainted i'm trying to talk to him frank frank
4: get me a doctor in here okay. sure. i need a doctor
1: yes doctor now so they rush him into a little doctor's wing.
4: Frank, if you can hear me, don't worry. I'm going to take allez, you home allez, in the morning. Home right. in the morning, Frank. Oh. <laughs> what are you doing? Washing of the lies. This man has to be on a plane for America. He has to see a doctor. The
7: doctor comes in tomorrow.
4: I have worked too long, too hard for you to take this away from me. If he dies, I'm holding you responsible.
1: Oh. And as they're all trying to talk, and he's trying to explain that he is trying to extradite Frank back to the United States, they turn around, and Frank has somehow managed to get out of the bed that they put him on, and he is running down the hallway of this prison where there are other people in other cells, and he's in such bad health, he doesn't get very far. And he falls to the ground, and Carl comes up behind him, and he finally looks at him and says,
3: Okay, Carl, let's go home.
1: And it's almost like you're getting the sense that they know each other. And this has been going on for a while. The thing is, is they did not know each other. The FBI was not looking for him at this point. He was never some major wanted figure from Interpol. He says that he was labeled a, quote unquote, master thief by Interpol. And that is not a thing. So basically, when he was finally taken back to the U.S., and we'll get into that later as we get through the story, he was just deported. And that's going to take us even farther back in time where we're going to see the beginning of how Frank got into this in the first place.
0: Right. So we jump back to an award ceremony at a Rotary Club in 1964. And we see Frank sitting at a table with his parents. Frank Abagnale Sr. is his dad and he's played by Christopher Walken. Um, And Christopher Walken or Frank Abagnale Sr. is winning an award from the Rotary Club.
5: The New Rochelle Rotary Club has a history that goes back to 1919. And all those years... We've only seen a handful of deserving gentlemen inducted as lifetime members. It's an honor that um, that has seen 57 names
7: enshrined on the wall of honor. And tonight we make it 58.
0: At this award ceremony, you get the sense that Frank Appignale Jr. is an only child. This is another thing that's not true. He actually had three siblings in real life. So Frank's dad's receiving an award and he tells this like parable about two little mice who dropped into a bucket of cream.
7: Two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse.
0: (laughs) This parable is going to stick with Frank throughout his story. But in real life, the dad never told this story. This is just like movie magic as a way to have you root for the little guy and somehow think that the con artist is the little guy. Yeah. So then we actually flash to the Abagnale house and it's Christmas time and Frank and his mom are dancing in the living room and his dad comes in and cuts in and starts dancing with his mom and tells us the story of how they met. You're a better dancer than your father, Frankie. You
7: hear that, Daddy? Like fun.
0: The girls don't know what they're in for.
7: (laughs) Show them the dance you were doing when we met.
0: Oh, who can remember?
7: The people in that little French village were so happy to see Americans. They decided to put on a show for us. So they crammed. Yeah, we know the story, (laughs) Daddy.
0: (laughs) So Frank's parents met in France while his dad was overseas during World War II, according to this story. And they seem to be a happy family. Like I said, it's portrayed that he's the only child and these are his parents, but they seem to be very much in love. And then you notice that Leo looks really young in this scene. He
1: does. Okay, so this movie was made in 2002. And he looks younger here to me than he did in Titanic, made in 1996. What is happening? Like, he looks way younger. (laughs) I'm going to try and see if I can figure that out on a mini-sode. I have not found anything saying they did anything special, but I am shocked by how he looks like a child. Right. And from what I gathered in reading the book, and we both were reading Alan C. Logan's book pretty fast the story that his parents met in France that is true his mother was from France and did naturalize and after we see the family together at Christmas we get the next scene where Frank is being woken up by his dad
7: Frank wake up come on let's go get up come on come on Frank wake up you don't have to go to school today it's okay why is it snowing do you have a black suit I oh, overslept again, huh? Yeah. We have a very important meeting in the city. Here, eat that. Come on,
1: come on. Here. And immediately from being woken up, you see them in front of a dry cleaner where the dad is trying to convince the lady that works in the dry cleaner to open up the store early, and he's begging her, can we please borrow a suit?
7: Ma'am, open up, just open up, please. Ma'am. Important. What? Oh gosh! We don't open for half an hour. Please just open the door, it's important.
5: I'm sorry, we don't open for half an hour. What's your name,
7: ma'am? Dorsey. Darcy, that's a pretty name. I'm oh, yeah. in a bit of a fix. I need a suit for my kids. My son, Frank, oh, he needs a black suit. Black there was a death in the family. My father, 85 years old, war hero. Yeah.
1: And obviously they don't have a suit in this dry cleaner, but he's trying to like con her into it. And it gives you the impression that Frank was taught or got the idea of conning people from his dad. And that's not true.
7: I'm sorry. We don't loan suits and we're not open. Darcy, Darcy, please yeah. come back. Darcy, is this yours? I just found it in the parking lot.
5: Uh-huh.
7: It must have slipped right off your neck.
1: And once they finish conning this lady at the dry cleaner, they get the suit and they're going into a bank. And we see Frank's dad trying to convince the bank to give him a loan. And they're telling him that they cannot give him one because he's being investigated by the IRS.
7: Mr. Abagnale? um, we don't usually loan money to people who have unresolved business with the IRS. That's a misunderstanding. I hired the wrong guy to do my books. It's a mistake. I, anybody could make it. I, I just need you guys to help me weather the storm. Sir, you're being investigated by the government for tax fraud. <sighs> my store is a landmark New New Rochelle. I have customers all over New York.
1: Frank's dad, by all accounts, was not being investigated by the IRS. And really, Frank actually doesn't talk about that either in his book. I think this was just to give an explanation for why all of a sudden the family falls on hard times. And apparently they really did fall on some hard times. I don't think that they were as major as the movie portrays, but immediately we see that the family car is getting repossessed and they're having to move out from their really nice house and they're having to move into a small apartment. And the mom is very upset by this.
7: This place is good. It's small, but you know, it's going to be a lot less work. A lot less work for you.
1: And the mom being really upset is going to lead into some false allegations about the mom, which I'll get into in a second. But it's also going to make it seem like Frank and his dad were extremely close. And they really weren't. And we see this especially in the next scene where it apparently is Frank's 16th birthday and his dad is giving him a booklet of personal checks. He's opened an account for him. Why are you opening a banking account? Well,
7: because one day you will want something from these people, a house, a car. They have all the money. It's fifty checks, there, Frank. Which means, from this day on, you're in that little club. I'm in that little club.
1: And what's interesting about this is his dad didn't actually give him a booklet of checks like this, but he did give him a credit card. And it ended up that, according to Frank, and Logan never confirms this in his book, I'm going to go ahead and assume it probably didn't happen, but maybe something similar did, is that Frank Sr., Frank's dad, ends up being his first victim. Because what he does with this credit card that his dad gives him is he will go around to different gas stations, and with the credit card, he would buy new tires or new parts for the car. And then he would tell these people that worked at the place, I don't really need the tires, but why don't you charge the card and give me cash back? I won't take the tires. Just give me the cash. And then he would have cash to spend on whatever the hell he wanted. The problem was Mm -hmm. then he didn't realize he was going to actually eventually have to pay that credit card off. And he didn't tell his dad. And he ended up raking up $3,400 on these credit cards. And His dad didn't realize it until somebody from the bank came and was like, can I just ask you, is something wrong with your car? You keep buying all these pieces of equipment for a car. And the dad had no clue what he was talking about. And they figured out it was Frank. I don't know if that is necessarily true, but he was definitely stealing. And he was stealing checks and buying stuff with those at this point. And then we get the next scene and it is Frank being dropped off at public school. And he normally before this apparently went to private school and now he's going to public school and he's still wearing his school uniform like he's wearing a suit. And his mom is like, why are you still wearing that?
6: Frankie, you don't have to wear the uniform here. Why don't you
1: take off your jacket? I'm used to it. And he walks in and he clearly doesn't fit in. Excuse me. Do you know what room 17 French is? Yes! <laughs> and he goes into his first classroom and it becomes very evident they think he's the teacher.
2: You selling
7: encyclopedias? Yeah, it looks like a substitute really? teacher. No.
1: And Frank just starts the class as the teacher. He writes his name on the board and he begins.
3: Quiet down, people! My name is Mr. Abignail! That's Abignail! Not Abignali, not Abignali, but Abignale. Now, oh, somebody please tell me where you left off in your textbooks. Excuse me, people, if I need to ask again, I'm going to write up the entire class.
1: Take your seats! And then the real substitute teacher comes in, and she's pissed because they didn't tell her that there was another sub. They said they needed a sub for Roberta. I came all the way from, from Dixon.
3: Well, I, I always sub for Roberta. Excuse me, why aren't you reading? Uh, two ills on...
2: I'll never come back to, to Bellarmine Jefferson again. You tell them not to call
6: me. What do they think? It's easy for a woman my age and all the money that it costs to travel?
1: I tell you, they
6: don't give it
1: damn. This ultimately leads to Frank's parents in the principal's office. And the principal is having to explain to them that Frank has been teaching his French class for the past week.
5: Your son has been pretending to be a substitute teacher lecturing the students, uh, giving out homework. Uh, Mrs. Glasser has been ill, and there was some confusion with the real sub. Your son held a teacher-parent conference yesterday and was planning a class field trip to a French bread factory in Trenton.
1: And, of course, this didn't happen, as a lot of things didn't. But what Frank did do at one point was he did claim to pretend to be a professor with a master's in social work for a couple of months. So he's most known for pretending to be the pilot, the doctor, and the lawyer. But there was a point in his biography where he claims that he at one point does befriend a guy that is a pastor or a reverend at a church. And he had told him that he did have a master's in social work. And he was looking to be a professor. And this is years down the road at a different time. This pastor did try to help him get a job, but every time he introduced him to someone that would have worked at a university, they would turn him down, realizing he was a complete fake. He didn't know anything about social work or sociology or anything like that. And eventually, this led to him getting caught because some of these professors called this pastor back and were like, hey, this guy you introduced us to, he is not a professor. Nobody thinks he is. This is not real. So I think that was a callback to that. Also, one time when I was in high school, I had a study hall. And I guess I had swim practice normally every morning. So I was just basically wearing my pajamas to school every day. But apparently on this day, I don't think we had practice or something. I was wearing normal clothes. And I was <laughs> sitting there reading a book. And this kid comes up to me. And he's like, excuse me, I'm really sorry. I was in this other class. I didn't get a note. But I was taking a quiz. Like, he thinks I'm the teacher. And I was like... <laughs> I was so shocked. I didn't know whether to stop him or just to let him keep talking. So eventually he stops talking and looks at me and I go, I'm not the teacher. I'm in this class. And he's like, oh, (laughs) and just went and sat down. We just looked at each other for a second. He thought I was the teacher. (laughs) That's amazing. So I could have pulled a Frank, but I did not because I'm a good person. (laughs)
0: Anyway. So after we see all of this happening at school, we get to a scene where Frank comes home and his mom walks out of a bedroom with a man that is not his dad.
3: Mom, home. Oh, you remember that girl Joanna I was telling you about? Yeah, I asked her out today. I think we're gonna go to the junior prom. Mom, is this my driver's license?
6: That's all there is, two bedrooms. Frankie. You remember dad's friend? Chuck Barnes?
5: From the club? Hello. He can buy looking for your father.
0: And Frank's immediately suspicious, and we get the best euphemism ever from the guy who says,
5: Thanks for the sandwich, Paula. I'll see you later,
0: huh? Oh, I didn't think about that till just now! It's funny because she just gave this excuse, but she immediately says to Frank, But you won't say anything because it's it's just silly, isn't it? How could we sue anybody?
2: Oh.
5: Do you need some money, Frankie? A few dollars to buy some
0: record albums? Here, take five dollars. And Frank's super sad now, and this is the start of Frank's mom in the movie getting a pretty bad reputation as a home wrecker. <laughs> and in real life, there wasn't evidence of this in real life. She supported Frank. She wrote letters for him when he did get in trouble with the law, advocating for him to get psychological help that he needed. And so it's pretty sad that throughout this movie, she's portrayed as a horrible French lady.
1: Yeah, that's true. And we see more of this in the next scene because we see Frank and he's walking home from school and he comes inside and there is yet another man in his house that he does not know. And he freaks out this time and is like, who the hell are you? And the guy has to calm him down.
5: Hey, hey, hey. You, you
3: stay away from me. Hear me? You stay away from me. I don't know who you are, but if you ever come back here again, Frank.
5: Frank.
6: Frank. Calm down, will you? I'm Dick Kesner. I want you to leave your things here. Follow me into the next room, okay?
1: They're all waiting for you. This guy is a lawyer. And he says, just come in the next room with me and we'll figure this out. He comes in the next room and his parents are sitting on opposite sides of the room. And this guy is saying everything but your parents are getting divorced. Like, it's classic. We are going to repress this and not talk about it. But (laughs) this family is separating.
6: You don't have to be
5: scared. I'm right here, Frank. I'll always be here. But there are laws. Everything in this country has to be legal. So what we need to do. Is make some decisions. That's what Mr. it is here for.
6: Well, many times these decisions are left up to the courts, but that can be very expensive, Frank. People fighting over their children.
1: Nobody's fighting. Look at me, Frank. Nobody's fighting. And at this point in the movie, Frank is 16 years old, and his mother is planning on moving out, and he has to pick who he wants to live with. And he's basically not going to see the other one anymore. This leads to a chaotic scene where it's him in the room talking to his parents and blurs of him running down the street.
6: Put a name down. You can take as long as you want. But when you come back into this room, I want to see a name on that line.
7: Frank, just write down the name.
6: This will all be over. It's going to be OK. Dad, what name? Your mother or your father? Just put the name there. It's as simple as that. And don't look so scared. It's not a test.
1: And you realize that Frank has just had a breakdown and just run from this room with his parents and this lawyer down the street into a train station. And it ends with him running up to a counter, saying, "Want to take you to Grand Central, please?
4: That'll be three dollars and fifty cents, sir. Is it okay if I write you a
6: check?"
1: And this is the first time we hear him say, "Can I write you a check?" And this is the beginning of his supposed check schemes all over the world. According to Frank's book, and also confirmed by Logan, Frank's parents separated when he was 12 years old. And although they were technically still married, his mom was living on her own for all of that time. She moved out and she, unlike how the movie portrays, was not a homewrecker. She actually went back and went to hygienist school to work with a dentist. Now, they officially divorced when he was 15 and his dad also pretty quickly remarried. And what I find really interesting is that one of our sources is... It's called a Google Talk. It's basically a TED Talk, but it's from Google. And it's Frank Abagnale speaking about his life. And you can watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it as a podcast. And Frank is telling the story of his life. And when he gets to this point where he's talking about his parents divorcing and how he learned, he is giving the plot of the movie. He is not saying what happened in his book. He's giving this whole scenario that was a little different. He was told to come from school to the courthouse when he was 15 years old. And they basically told him, pick who you want to live with. And he ran out and ran to a train station this did not happen. And it's almost like he can't remember what he said in the book because neither one of those things is true. Right. What really happened was he ultimately lived with his mom for a little bit. Then he chose to live with his dad. And at some point, he decided that he was going to join the Navy. And based on the records from the Navy, he joined on December 23rd, 1964. And then he was ultimately discharged on February 18th, 1965. So he did not run away after After his parents' divorce, he went to the Navy. And that is the first documented source showing that Frank was not flying around the world pretending to be a pilot
0: so in the movie after we see him go to the train station we get him being pushed out of an apartment and frank is begging the landlord not to kick him out
3: mr mudrick mr mudrick
5: please you have to listen i don't want to hear your story oh. this is two checks that bounce you know how much trouble i'm in
3: no but listen i'm telling you the bank they made the mistake i'll write you another check
0: right now
5: Boy, look like i was born yesterday
0: look it's midnight mr mudrick where am i gonna go you're a goddamn kid go home And Frank is trying to make up excuses, saying it's a misunderstanding. And the guy tells him, hey, you're a kid, go home. He's supposed to be 16 at this point in the movie. And so then next, we get a close-up of him somewhere else. And he's altering his birth certificate, his name and birth date. And he's making himself 10 years older and changing his name to Frank Taylor. From there, we get him trying to cash checks at some other banks. And he's trying to basically, like schmooze bank tellers everywhere into cashing these checks for him. I'm sorry, but we're not allowed to cash checks from other banks. How would we know if they were any good? What did you say your name was?
2: Ashley.
3: Ashley? You know what I found on the sidewalk out there? must have slipped right off your neck. Is there something I can help you with, son?
0: And he's going through a lot of no's.
3: Well, you see, it's my grandmother's birthday next week, and I want to get us something extra special. Please, I mean, it's my midterm next week, and my books will stolen. <laughs> Please, it's just $5. No one would have to know.
0: I'm sorry, but we are not allowed to take checks from people we don't know. And then one day he's walking down the street in New York City and he sees a pilot and a bunch of stewardesses, or as we call them now, flight attendants, getting out of a cab. And they look like they are living the high life. There's a little kid running up to the pilot asking for an autograph. They're checking into a fancy hotel. And we see like a light bulb go off in Frank's head at this point.
1: Yeah. And it's at that point we get the first voiceover and it's Frank writing a letter to his dad.
3: Dear dad. I have decided to become an airline pilot. I have applied to all the big airlines and I have several promising interviews lined up. How's mom? Have you called her lately? Love your son, Frank.
1: And we're going to get these voiceovers that are letters of Frank writing to his dad throughout the movie. None of them are true. It is true that he does keep in contact with his parents throughout all this time, but he wasn't writing letters telling them basically lies about what he was doing. So, for instance, in this letter, he's saying that he's decided to go to pilot school and you see as you're watching the movie that's not at all what he's doing he's (laughs) trying to figure out how to sneakily make it look like he's a pilot like he's already starting the scheme and another thing that we see in this part is that in these letters it seems like Frank is trying to pull off these schemes for the purpose of bringing his family back together he keeps saying I'm going to be a pilot I'm going to bring our family back together and we'll all be happy again this was also not something that Frank Abagnale talks about in his book and it's not alluded to being something that motivated the real Frank, according to Alan C. Logan. This is a fictional plot point that Steven Spielberg put in there. Steven Spielberg was a kid of divorce and he puts this idea in a lot of his movies of trying to heal the broken home or cope with the broken home and he's done it before. So after we hear this letter being read to us, we see Frank and he is going to the headquarters of Pan Am and he is telling the lady at the front desk that he's a high school student, that he has an appointment with a pilot there. Hello.
3: I'm Frank Black from Monroe High School, and I have an appointment with Mr. Morgan.
1: You're the young man who's writing the article for the school paper.
3: Yes, ma'am. That's me. I want to know everything there is to know about being a pilot.
1: And we see him talking to this pilot... According to Frank's book, he just called up to the office and they were like, let us put you through to the break room. And somebody just answered the phone. And either way, whether he made an appointment or just called into this break room, the questions that he is asking this pilot are not questions you would ask for a school newspaper. It is so sketchy because he's asking things like,
3: <laughs> what airports does Pan Am fly to? Uh, what does a pilot make in and who, who tells them where they're going to fly to? Well, whoa, 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 just take them one at a time. All right. What does it mean when one pilot says to another pilot? What kind of equipment do you want?
5: I just want to know what kind of aircraft you're flying. Is it a dc 8707 Constellation?
1: And then the pinnacle of all things is, he says...
5: And,
3: and what about those ID badges that I've uh, seen pilots
0: wear?
5: Well, every pilot has to have two things with them at all times. One is his airline personnel badge. Looks just like this one here from Pan Am. The other one is their FAA license. And that looks just like this. Oh. Do you think I can make a copy of this to put into my article? Oh, Frank... You can have that when it's three years expired. Oh,
1: thanks. And the guy hands him his expired pilot's license that he's just carrying around. You're not even supposed to carry around an expired driver's license. And he's giving him basically a fake ID to fly a plane. This didn't happen in real life, obviously, but apparently Frank wants us to believe that everybody from the 60s was just idiots. And in the next scene, we see Frank being fitted for a uniform. And the way he claims he got the uniform was that he called Pan Am and he told them he needed to be put through to the people that supply the uniforms because he had lost his in the hotel laundry when he sent it out to be cleaned.
3: Hey, hello, I'm calling about a uniform.
1: Called for purchasing.
2: Thank
3: you.
1: Why
3: don't you um, I'm a co pilot based out of San Francisco. I flew a flight into New York last night, but the problem is I'm headed out to uh, Paris in three hours.
6: How can we help you?
3: I sent my uniform to be cleaned through the hotel, and I, I guess I must have lost it.
6: They lost a uniform. Happens all the time. Go
1: down to the well-built uniform company at 9th and Broadway. They're uniform supplier. I'll tell Mr. Rosen you're coming. And they send him to the right person. He goes over. He gets fitted. And it's perfect for him because when he says, can I write you a check? The guy goes, no
6: checks, no cash. You'll have to fill in your employee ID number and then I'll be a Pan Am. I'll take it out in your next paycheck. Even better.
1: So he just writes a fake employee ID number into this billing paper and goes right on his way. He doesn't even have to use a fake check. And one other thing that you notice when you see Frank being fitted for his pilot's uniform is that he knows what to say to this guy that's fitting him for this pilot's uniform in terms of what his position is. So he's done enough research to know that it would be weird if he was the head pilot in a plane. But if he was, say, 26 years old, 10 years older than what he's claiming to be, being a co-pilot would be pretty normal. So you hear him say that he's a co-pilot.
6: You look too young to be a pilot. I'm a co-pilot. Uh, why so nervous? How'd you feel if you uh, lost your uniform first week on the job? <laughs> <laughs> Relax. Uh, Pan Am's got lots of uniform.
1: And the guy's sympathy for him because he just lost his uniform on his first day. We don't know how he originally got a fake uniform, but there was a point where Paula Parks, the woman that wrote the foreword to Alan C. Logan's book, we're going to hear from her more later. She claims that one day she was with him and they were walking around in the Miami area and they actually walked by some uniform places and it wasn't unusual, kind of like how a doctor would just need to buy scrubs and there's a store that has a bunch of scrubs. You could buy a very basic uniform and so it's suspected that's what he did, is so he just bought a uniform somewhere.
0: And then after he has managed to dress up like a pilot, we see him at the bank again, and he's trying to cash checks with his fake name. And this time, because he looks like a pilot, nobody has a problem cashing his checks. We even get one of the same guys who said no last time saying yes and thanking him for his service as a pilot. That's 50 yeah. 70
6: 80 oh. 90 $100. <laughs> You have yourself a great time in
3: Paris. I always do. Excuse me? I'm John Modica. I manage this branch. I want to thank you for coming in and using our institution. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, John. I'll be back again. Good.
0: We see him check into a hotel and he goes to write a fake check.
3: Have you stayed with us before? Uh, no, I've been primarily based on the West Coast.
6: Is it all right if I write you a check for the
3: room? No
0: problem, sir. Great. They take the check and he asked if they could cash a personal check for him and they say yep of course for pilots we can do that
3: i was also wondering if i could write you a personal check for airline personnel we cash personal checks up to 100 dollars payroll checks we cash up to 300 you say 300 for a payroll check
0: They could cash personal checks for airline pilots up to $100. In today's money, that would be $740. And then with a payroll check, the hotel said that they would cash up to $300, which in today's money would be around $2,220. This is supposedly how Frank finds out that if he can make payroll checks, he'll have access to a lot more capital. So that's when we start to see these fake payroll checks. We see that there's one thing missing, and that's there's no label or logo for Pan Am. And so the next scene, we have a bathtub with a toy Pan Am airplane that he's able to soak the sticker off and use it as a label on the check. Frank goes back to the bank with this fake payroll check.
6: Hello, how are you?
0: Fine, thank you.
6: I have a payroll
3: check here
0: I'd
3: like to cash. Certainly. Thank you. Uh, excuse me. I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you have the most beautiful eyes I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I do get that all the time.
0: <laughs> How would you like it? And it works. So that's when we're going to get the montage of all of the little toy airplanes in the hotel bathroom and Frank really getting to town on this supposed check fraud scheme that he has going on.
1: And the thing with the check fraud scheme, that is not really true. And we're going to talk more about that as we go. But basically, the reason he got this uniform is he used the uniform as sort of a way to make himself be taken seriously. And he actually initially didn't claim to be a Pan Am pilot. He claimed to be a trans world pilot. And he would get to know people and integrate himself into their lives, even sometimes stay with them. And they would believe that he was legitimately a pilot and he would get into their personal documents steal their checks, and write checks off these ones that he stole. He wasn't writing himself payroll checks like the movie is leading you to believe. And even in his book, although Frank does claim that he did do this, he says that he did not do this till much later. So after we get this montage of Frank making all these payroll checks, he attempts to cash one of them at a hotel, but the hotel explains to him,
6: Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We won't have any cash until the banks open in an hour. But, uh, I'm sure they can cash your check at the airport. The airport? Who cashes checks at the airport? Well, the airline, sir. They've always taken care of their own.
1: And he had never done this before. They make it seem like he didn't know this. And so we see him attempt to do this for the very first time. And as he's walking up to the airline, the flight attendant looks at him and asks him, Hello. Hi. Are you deadheading? What? Are you my deadhead to Miami?
3: Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a deadhead. Here you go.
6: You're a little late, but the jump seat is open. (laughs)
3: You know, it's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Have a nice flight. And Frank has. No idea what the heck this means, but he just kind of goes with it. And according to Frank's book, he knew what that meant. And he had to know because he had to know the lingo from different pilots because he claims that he almost got caught once because someone asked him a basic question that any pilot would know while he was sitting in a restaurant in the airport. And he didn't know the answer. And they immediately knew he was a fake. Now, in real life, all of these people that worked at these airlines knew he was a fake. They knew there was a weird guy going around in a pilot's uniform and trying to cash for Personal checks that were no good. But that's not how the movie shows it to be. And he gets distracted from the whole cashing the check thing because he gets this question of, are you my deadhead? And he just says, yeah, I am. And so we see the flight attendant telling him, you're a little late, but go ahead, go ride on the plane. So he just kind of looks around and is like, well, I guess I'm getting on this plane. And we see, for the first time, one of the random castings in this movie. And it is Ellen Pompeo, a.k.a. Dr. Meredith Grey, as the world's perkiest stewardess you've ever seen. She's super excited to see him. Are you my deadhead? I just associate her with Grey's Anatomy, which I've only watched one season of 15 years ago. But she always just looks very sad and very (laughs) tired. And that's not how she looks here. So it's kind of like, whoa. Hi, Doctor Gray. <laughs> and she takes them into the cockpit area, and she opens up this extra seat. And we realize that a deadhead is just a pilot catching a ride on another plane from one place to another in between times where they're working. Frank, Captain Oliver, John Lark, the co-pilot, Fred Tully, flight engineer.
5: Frank Taylor, Pan Am. Thanks for giving me a lift, boys. Go ahead and take a seat, Frank. We're about to push. What kind of equipment are you want? DC eight, uh, seven hundred seven. You turning around on the red-eye?
3: I'm jumping puddles for the next few months trying to earn my keep running leapfrogs for the weak and weary.
5: (laughs) No shame in that. We all did it.
1: And I think this is actually a real thing. My husband's friend in Europe is a pilot and they'll do this sometimes. And they also remind us that he is a fucking child because they ask him, what do you want to drink? And he asks for milk. Have a seat. Thank you. Would you like a drink after takeoff? Milk? But again, he was much older... At this point, he would have been in his 20s when he was doing this, and he did deadhead a couple of times, but when he did this, he refused to go sit in the cockpit. He was too scared because he didn't want to be found out. He would sit almost in the back of the plane instead, and this is also a time where we are going to introduce a real person that the real Frank Abagnale met and dealt with and ultimately fucked over, and her name is Paula Parks. I've mentioned her before. She was one of the people that wrote the foreword of that book. And Paula Parks was a real Delta flight attendant. And she first encountered Frank on a deadhead situation where he was coming onto the plane. And he did not sit in the cockpit, but he did talk to all of the flight attendants. And then he went to dinner with them after the fact. And she says she remembered him being really, really talkative and kind of weird. And what he ultimately does is he asks her if they can go on a date later. And she didn't really want to go on a date with him, but she was like, yeah, sure i guess and she brought her roommate along and this is very different from the depiction we see of ellen pompeo in the movie because he comes up and does the whole schmoozing thing with the necklace hello
2: deadhead hello enjoying your free ride
3: marcy did you drop this to it slip
6: right off your neck. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Uh, no. And we've seen this necklace thing happen a couple of times now. And it works immediately. But yeah. the real Paula described Frank as almost stalking her. And she was very uncomfortable with him. She would be flying to other locations and he would just be there. He wound up in Washington, D.C. when she had a layover there. He wound up in New Orleans when she had a layover there. And he never left her alone. And he's not only not going to leave her alone, he is going to steal quite a bit from her family. But we'll get to that a little bit later.
0: Yeah, very upsetting to see that he was actually a stalker creep. And in the movie, we're all like, oh, look at him. Woo, Ellen Pompeo for this fun one-nighter.
1: Yeah, (laughs) which... I will not get over ellen pompeo but anyway
0: so then we see frank at a bank in miami and we get another random casting because elizabeth banks is the teller here welcome miami mutual bank how may i help you
3: my name is frank taylor i'm a co-pilot for pan am i'd like to cash this check here and then i'd like to take you out for a steak
2: dinner
0: we see throughout, Frank claims it to be the case that he was very much a womanizer and he claims that he was very popular with the ladies and to an extent, some women did flock to him when he had fame and stuff after appearing on Johnny Carson, but he was just, it was not good.
1: The um, difference between that though and what Frank says, if Frank yeah. makes it seem like he just would walk up to someone and just go, hello ma'am, and they just ripped their own clothes off and that was not <laughs> what was happening. But anyway, right. Continue.
0: So he's flirting with Elizabeth Banks, and he's really using it as a guise to figure out how checks work. And then we feed the checks into the maker machine, which uses special ink to encode the account numbers on the bottom of the checks.
3: <laughs> and where are these numbers?
2: They're um, right here. Right
0: there. See? <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> They're called numbers. Even though he's been faking checks, he doesn't really understand them. So she's explaining how they print the checks and teaches them about routing numbers and how the digits in the routing numbers are used to identify banks and specific financial institutions. And so that tells you where each check is coming from. And so from there, we see Frank's scheme intensify. He's at a bank auction and he ends up purchasing an MICR encoder, which is used to encode bank checks. So this is where his operation gets more intense or more legitimate. Our next item up
4: for bid is also from the Jersey Central Bank
5: foreclosure. This is a MICR encoder, a machine used to encode bank checks. Do I have an opening bid?
1: Yeah. And once we see him buy this encoder, we get an even more detailed explanation as to what exactly Frank's doing in the next scene. We go back to Carl, and this is actually the first time we've seen Carl in this flashback. And it's showing him giving a presentation at the FBI to some other FBI investigators explaining this new case that he has.
4: Our unknown subject is a paper hanger who started working on the East Coast. In the last few weeks, this unsub has developed a new form of check fraud, which I'm calling the float. What he's doing is he's opening checking accounts at various banks and then changing the Micker Inc routing numbers at the bottom of those checks.
1: And he hasn't said his name yet, but we, the viewer, know that it's Frank.
4: This is a map of the 12 banks of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Slide. Micker scanners at every bank read these numbers at the bottom of a check. Slide. And then ship that check off to its corresponding branch.
6: Carl, for those of us who are unfamiliar with bank fraud, you mind telling us what the hell you're talking about?
4: The East Coast branches are numbered 01, the 06, the central branch is 07, 08, so on, so forth.
1: And we also notice at this point that Carl is clearly in the boring division of the FBI. Nobody is really paying attention and nobody seems to be too interested because it's not that exciting.
4: If you change a 02 to a 12, that means that check, which was cashed in New York, does not go to the New York federal branch, but it is rerouted all the way to the San Francisco federal branch. The bank doesn't even know the check has bounced for two weeks, which means our unsub can stay in one place, paper the same city over and over again while this check circle the country.
7: You know, you want to talk to my wife. She's the one balances the checkbook at our house.
1: But what Carl is essentially requesting in this presentation is he wants to put together a team to help him find this guy because he doesn't know who's doing this at this point. And despite his enthusiastic presentation and Tom Hanks just being Tom Hanks, they are not too enthused and they give him these two lackeys as his investigation team. And in the next scene, we see them all driving together down the street and they're talking about what they did before they came to work with Carl.
4: Let me ask you a question, Mr. Andersky. If you are having so much fun undercover, why did you transfer to bank fraud? I didn't transfer. I was censured and reassigned. It's like being punished. I was punished. I screwed up in the field. What about you, Mr. Fox? Were you punished for screwing up in the field?
5: No, no, no. I've never worked in the field before. I audited background investigations of Department of Justice clerical applicants. Well, that's just great. I asked my team and they dragged the bottom of the Pacific.
1: And poor Carl, he is just over it with these two dudes. What if I ask you a question, Agent Handwriting? I can be so serious all the time. Does it bother you, Mr. Anders?
4: Yeah. Yeah, it does bother me. Does it bother you, Mr. Fox? A little, I guess. Oh, would you like to hear me tell a joke? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'd love to hear a joke from you. Knock, knock. Who's there? Go fuck yourselves.
1: And once we see Carl's team put together, we see that they are turning in to a swanky little 60s motel called the Tropicana Motel. And immediately the girl from Ipanema is playing at this fun little 60s pool party. And I don't know why. Grace and I used to be obsessed with that song in college. We played it on repeat. We've had a very weird playlist of songs and this was on it. And I don't know why. (laughs) It's a fantastic song, though.
0: So It It makes me think of Bolton every time I hear it.
1: (laughs) So, girl from Ipanema is playing, and they're walking through this hotel, and they're actually going to see the hotel owner. And we realize that the reason they're trying to talk to him is they are trying to track down all of these checks that have been used by this unknown person at this point. We know it's Frank. They don't know.
5: He cashed three checks. They all cleared. I was going to deposit this one today.
1: And they get one of these checks. And as they're walking out, the owner of the motel says,
6: I don't want any trouble.
4: No trouble? No trouble at all. We'll just take this check and be on our way. Thank you. Good. Because I don't want my customers harassed. What are you saying? Are you still here?
6: 201.
1: Thank you. And this is kind of the start of the cat and mouse game that's played throughout this entire movie where they're so close to getting him, but then he gets away. Not real. In fact, at this point in Frank's life, he is in the US and he's stealing some cars and he's writing some bad checks, but he is not in any way, shape or form being looked at by the FBI because just stealing a check and using it or writing a check with insufficient funds, that is not a federal crime. That's like a theft. That's going to be dealt with by state or local police. But in the movie, they're like, oh, my God, he's right here. So they start running up the stairs trying to find his room. And at the same time, we see Frank coming in. He's been out doing stuff. And you notice specifically that as he's going up, he sees a neighbor that he apparently knows. And it's an older blind man. And he's being led by a caretaker or a caregiver down the stairs.
2: Corner here. Oh, thanks. God. Some
3: steps. Steps hey mr murphy how are you is that frank yeah that's frank hey frank how are you how's the knee? come on i'll reach you right now <laughs> take care
1: okay frank and he says hey to him he goes up and it's about this time that you're like oh my gosh they're gonna see each other but Frank has outsmarted Carl and got into the room first. And what he does is he hides in the bathroom. And Carl comes bursting in. And apparently, as is now, there is absolutely no protocol whatsoever because Carl's got his gun out and is swinging it everywhere. And this is a check case. 201. On FBI, come
4: out of the bathroom. Step out of the bathroom.
1: And he's yelling all out. And we hear the toilet flush and out comes Frank. And Frank is as cool as a cucumber. And Carl's pointing the gun at him and freaking out until finally Frank says, relax, I'm on your side.
3: Hands on your head. Well, that's the new IBM Selectric. Here. Put your hands on Change your head. A print type in five seconds. Shut up. Pop out the ball.
1: Put your hands on
4: your head. Put your hands.
3: You know he's got over two hundred checks here. Hands of on your head. Drafting. Even has a little payroll envelopes. Put it to down. Dress to himself from Put it hand. down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. My name is Allen Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody.
1: And he claims to be from the Secret Service. And the Secret Service is actually a real police agency. They randomly do a lot of cell phone stuff. You can send phones to them and they can give you information. And so he explains to Carl that he has been investigating the same guy that Carl's investigating, knowing full well that they are both talking about him. And the most brilliant part of the movie, at least, is he says,
4: Hey,
3: you mind taking that gun out of my face? Please, really. I mean, it makes me
4: nervous. We see some credentials. Yeah, sure. Take my whole wallet. <clears throat>
1: And hands him a humongous wallet and you're like god this is ballsy and he explains to him also you can look out the window and see we caught the guy he's right there
3: hey hey look just do me a favor take a look outside look look out the window my partner's walking into the car as we speak look
1: and with perfect timing points to this old blind man that we just saw being walked out of the hotel to Carl getting into a car as caregivers helping him get in a car and Carl thinks that it's this perpetrator and then what happens is Carl's completely at ease now
3: well tough luck Carl five minutes earlier you would have landed yourself a pretty good collar. it's alright
4: ten seconds later and you'd have been shot Mind if I come downstairs with you? I I gotta take a look at this guy. Sure thing, just uh, do me a favor and sit tight for a second while I get this evidence
3: downstairs. You know, I don't want some maid walking through here and making the bed. LAPD should be here any
4: sec.
1: And as he's about to walk out the door, Carl stops him and you think, oh, this is it. He's gonna get him, and he just goes. Wait.
3: Your wallet. You hang on to it for a minute. I trust you.
1: And Frank goes down the stairs, bolts out of the motel and is running down the street. And you see Carl thinking and he opens up the wallet and you realize as you're looking around the room, all of the labels on bottles and stuff like that around the room have been ripped off and they're all stuffed in this wallet to make it look like it's full when it's actually just a bunch of crap. And Carl realizes he literally had the guy right there to catch him and he missed him. And immediately he freaks out and he also gets in very big trouble with his boss and has a talking to. But the one thing about this is now Carl knows what Frank looks like. He knows who he's supposed to be looking for. And the other thing about this scene is Frank gives Carl the name Barry Allen. So he is thinking that his name's Barry Allen and he's going to start doing criminal background checks and looking up different people to see if there's a Barry Allen in the system. So remember that.
0: And then we're going to go back to Frank talking to that older pilot that we saw him speaking to earlier, where he's pretending to be this high school student. I guess he's coming back frequently and asking this guy more questions for the school newspaper.
3: So my, my next question is, when a pilot retires, uh, Paynum sends them a check every single
5: month? Uh, yeah, pension program sends a check and benefits. How much is that check for?
0: And the older pilot guy is distracted.
5: Uh, Kid, I'm really not in the mood for this right now. This Skyway man's driving me crazy. Who's this Skyway man? Uh, Some nut that's flying around the country posing as a Pan Am pilot. There's a column about him in the paper.
0: So the older guy hands Frank the paper and he realizes that this Skyway man is him.
5: I keep telling him this is not my problem. This guy doesn't even fly Pan Am. Flies everybody else. Flies United, TWA, Continental, Eastern. Skyway. Newspaper loves this clown. They call him the James Bond of the sky.
0: And at the time, Sean Connery was playing James Bond, and he was quite the smoke show. So being compared to James Bond as a 16 or 17-year-old boy, as Frank claims to be, is the highest compliment that a teenage boy could receive at the time. And so the next scene, Frank is watching Goldfinger in the movie theater, and then from there he's going to go buy the exact same suit that James Bond wears in the movie. He even does a little impression for us in the mirror. Hello, pushy. And as the tailor's finishing up, he, like, has to confirm this is, like, the actual suit that he's wearing in Goldfinger.
3: Are you sure this is the suit, right?
0: Positive.
3: It's the exact suit he wore in the movie. Okay, I'll take three. Certainly, Mr. Fleming. Now what you need is one of those little foreign sports cars that he drives.
0: And so then the next scene,
1: we're going to see Leo driving down the road in, in Aston Martin. And the thing about them calling him the Skyway Man After all of this happens and Frank goes on this speaking tour that he books himself, he makes up this story that everybody was calling him that when the reality was nobody was calling him that. And another thing I noticed at this point is when he does get that convertible, one thing that Paula Parks pointed out when she met Frank and had to go on that date with him that she didn't really want to go on, he did have a convertible that he drove. But it wasn't an Aston Martin, but she remembers specifically that every time she drove with him, he would drive like unbelievably slow, like at least 20 miles an hour under the speed limit. And later she realized it was because the car that he had was stolen. He had either stolen a car from somebody that had rented it or pretended to be this person and rented a car in Florida, then driven it out of the state and never returned it. And that's going to be one of the things that he's ultimately charged with is theft of this car. So we don't ever see this whole storyline in the movie with Paula Parks, but because they're bringing in the convertible at this point, it is true that he did have a convertible that he stole. And we get to random casting number three, and this is the worst one of all of them, and it is (laughs) Jennifer Gardner. So after Frank gets his Aston Martin, he is going to go back to his hotel room in some fancy schmancy hotel. And as he's in the hallway of this hotel And he's opening the door to his room And looks over And there's this woman standing there And it's not like they're at a bar or a lobby They are just in a hallway And she is creepily standing by this other door And it is Jennifer Garner And he recognizes her as this famous model at the time Named Cheryl Hello Hi. Haven't I seen you
3: before?
2: Maybe. A couple years ago, I was on the cover of
3: Seventeen. Yeah. you that model,
6: right? Cheryl. Yes. The guys <laughs> used to put your picture on their lockers.
1: And this whole story is in his book. And there was, he claims, a real woman that was 24 years old named Cheryl that was a model. And... Where he met her in the book was actually at a party. He had been laying low for a little bit, not pretending to be a pilot and had become, so he claims, good friends with some high political leap. And they invited him to this party and he meets this model and they start talking. Now, in the movie, he asks her,
3: think I could get an autograph.
1: Do you have a pen in your room? And now at this point, it's becoming very clear that Jennifer Gardner is supposed to be a sex worker. And I don't know who in casting owed Jennifer Gardner a favor, (laughs) but this is the worst casting. I love her. I think she's beautiful. I think she can be a great actress, but this was not the role for her at all. Right. And so they get into this conversation about how much would Frank be willing to spend for her to stay the entire night? And he starts putting out offers.
6: Three hundred go fish.
3: Five hundred dollars go fish. (laughs) Six (laughs) hundred
2: go fish.
3: A thousand dollars.
1: Okay and they ultimately come to the conclusion that he's going to pay a thousand dollars for her to stay the entire night and because he's supposed to be 16 he bolts out the door like he's going to go cash a check but cheryl is like it's three in the morning that's going to look shady as fuck if you do that
3: it's a new york savings and loan check it's
6: like gold they'll cash it
1: don't you think they might get a little suspicious let me see that
2: It's a cashier's check, endorse it over to me.
6: No,
3: I couldn't do that. See, this check is for 1,400, we agreed upon 1,000.
2: Why don't I give you back 400
1: and you give me
2: that check?
3: Even better.
1: Now, we all know that this check is going to be no good. So basically, Mm -hmm. they both have just gotten screwed. This didn't happen. In fact, this is like an old joke, the story about the prostitute where they both got screwed. And Frank just Mm -hmm. put his own spin on it. And in his book, he actually claims that this Cheryl girl was a bitch. And this is the first time we really hear in the book that he says, I never stole from individuals or small businesses. I only stole from these big corporations like Pan Am. And he says that Cheryl was the one exception where he did steal from her. He took that $400 because she was just rude. But the thing is, we're going to see he stole from a lot of people, big business, small business individuals, and he paid none of them back ever. Right.
0: So now we're going to go to Carl in the FBI office, which appears to be the middle of the night, and Malakalikimaka is playing, and it turns out that it's Christmas Eve.
6: is a thing to say.
4: Christmas Day. Mrs. Hanratty, Merry Christmas
6: Hello Carl
0: So the phone rings and it's Frank on the other line And Frank supposedly wants to apologize for what happened in LA
4: Barry Allen, Secret Service
3: I've been trying to track you down now for the last couple of hours What do you want? I wanted to apologize for what happened out in Los
4: Angeles Uh 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 uh, no, no, you don't apologize to me Do you always work
6: on Christmas Eve, Carl? I volunteered, so men with families could go home early. It looked like you were wearing a wedding ring out in Los Angeles. I thought maybe you had a family.
3: No.
0: And Frank wants to talk face to face. He says,
3: I have my suite at the Stuyvesant Arms, room 3113. In the morning, I leave for
4: Las Vegas for the weekend. You think you're gonna get me again? You're not going to Vegas. You're not in the of and arms. You'd love for me to send out 20 agents Christmas Eve to badge into your hotel. Knock down the door so you can make fools out of us all.
0: And by the end of this phone call, Carl realizes that the reason Frank is calling him on Christmas Eve is because Frank is lonely.
6: Oh, Carl, I'm sorry, but I, I have to go. Ah, you didn't
4: call just to apologize, did you? you you have no one else to call
0: (laughs) he's not close to his family he doesn't have anyone to talk to on christmas eve so he's perpetuating this cat and mouse game and they hang up but the next morning we see frank walking out of the room number that he was telling carl that he'd be at so he was telling the truth But these phone calls and this whole cat and mouse game, like we said, did not actually happen in real life. They have this building the relationship between Carl and Frank in the movie. But the real guy that Carl's based on never communicated with Frank while he was on the run.
1: Right. The one thing I found interesting about this scene and this whole like relationship building between Carl and Frank is that in Alan C. Logan's book, when he's talking to Mark Zinder, who was also mentioned in the foreword of the book and was later Frank Abagnale's press agent before he screwed him over too, is he Mm -hmm. mentioned that he would go on these tours with Frank when he did these speaking jobs. And he did say that I really do think he was lonely. He would socialize with people a lot, but it was very superficial. And he randomly always wanted Mark to stay in the same room with him, but in twin beds, even though he was always hooking up with girls and having to send Mark out. But I think he just did not want to be alone. So Mm. in some ways, there's some truth to this loneliness that they talk about. Yeah, But despite that, Frank still sucks. And Carl continues on with his investigation. And we see Carl in a diner. And he's going through a bunch of criminal records of people named Barry Allen. Like we mentioned earlier, when Carl and Frank came face to face and Frank was pretending to be the Secret Service agent, he gave him the name Barry Allen. So Carl's trying to see if this is possibly his real name. And this kid comes up and is refilling his coffee. And he sees the name Barry Allen written on this document that Carl's going through. And he asks him...
6: Are you a collector? Of what?
0: The captains of the Cosmic Ray, the Big Freeze, Land of the Golden Giants, I've got them all. What are you talking
1: about? And Carl is just exhausted and tired and doesn't want to talk to this kid. But he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And the guy says to him.
4: Barry Allen. The Flash. But kid, kid, kid. You mean like the comic book? Yeah, the comic book. When he's not the Flash, he's playing Barry Allen.
1: Barry Allen is the superhero, the Flash's cover name when he's not right. the Flash. And so Carl stops him says, "Wait, wait, wait! I'm sorry, I was a dick. Come back, talk to me." And then we immediately see him run to a payphone and he's calling the other members of his team. Now get this—he reads comic books. Comic books. Barry Allen is the Flash. Carl, slow down,
6: slow down. What the hell
4: about. He's a kid. Our unsub is a kid. That's why we couldn't match his prince. That's why he doesn't have a record. I want you to contact NYPD for every all points juvenile runaways in New York City. And don't forget the airports. He's been cutting checks all over the country. Well, why New York? The Yankees. He said something about the Yankees.
1: They've put together that whoever this person is that Carl came face to face with, that's writing all these checks all over the place. It's a kid. So the first Mm -hmm. thing he decides to do, instead of looking at the criminal backgrounds of adults in the area, they run juvenile records for people in the area. And Carl also picked up on the fact that when Frank and Carl were speaking on Christmas Eve, Frank made a reference to the Yankees. So he's like, I think he's from New York. Do a run of juvenile records in New York and we're going to start going door to door to find this guy now as brilliant as this is this did not happen but I give props to a pretty intense plot twist in the movie yeah and finally there's some movement for Carl and they are at their 53rd house that they are visiting trying to go through all of the juveniles in the area of New York and they stop at Frank's mom's new house. She is remarried and she has this big fancy house and again it makes her seem like a gold digger when the reality is both parents remarried and Frank's mom actually worked really hard for her kids and worked really hard for Frank to help him when he needed it. But anyway, Frank sucks. And the- they are talking to her, and she's explaining that she's from France originally. My husband, Jack, is a
4: lawyer. What about your first husband, Mrs. Abagnale?
1: Abagnale,
6: but I prefer to be called Barnes.
4: Frank William Abagnale. It says here he was in the service. Did, did you two meet during the war?
5: Yeah, I lived in, in a very small village in France, Mont-Richard
1: and that Frank's gotten in some trouble but he ran away a while ago and she hasn't really heard from him and she goes and gets a yearbook so they can see what he looks like and she hands it to Carl and Carl looks in it and immediately he sees that the person that he met at the Tropicana Motel was the same person as this kid and he has totally been conned by a kid and immediately he jumps up like they are just going to leave Frank's mom in the dust that explains to her at all what is going on okay
4: okay we got it. We need to send out an all office teletype. Our uh, runs up. His name is Frank Abbott Mail Jr., age 17.
2: Is Frankie okay? He's in trouble? And he just says,
4: Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son is forging checks.
2: Forging checks? Wait, I'm sure we can take care
1: of that. I'm working part time at the church now. Just tell me how much he owes, and I'll pay you back.
4: So far, it's about $1.3 million.
1: And the mom is just left there dumbstruck. Was nobody going to explain to her what was going on? <laughs> also, this is reason number 8,000 why I am not a parent. If my kid spent a bunch of money that I was going to have to pay back, let alone a million dollars.
0: From there, we're going to flash to Atlanta, Georgia, the Riverbend Apartments. And there's this major house party, pool party going on. We see Frank walking around. He's like basically trying to get people to treat stuff in the house nicely. Hey, I please. Hey, System, all right, it's real to real. You
3: can't wind it like that. Uh, Christ! Terry, this is Italian knit. Watch where you're going. Just a shirt,
0: man. Christ! Come <laughs> she's into the conversation pit. And someone spills on his fancy clothes and he gets really pissed. And one of his friends is up getting hurt and needs to go to the ER. In real life, Frank does claim that he lived in a place called the Riverbend Apartments in Georgia.
1: And the explanation by Frank as to how he ended up in Georgia at this apartment was that he claims that he felt that there was too much heat on this quote unquote Skyway man and he needed to stop working as a pilot or pretending to be a pilot for a little bit. So that's why he ends up getting this apartment And the way that he
0: claims that he was able to secure this apartment was he decided that he would say, oh, I'm a doctor, but I'm not practicing right now because I have a California license and now I'm in Georgia, so I can't work, but I can afford to pay for this apartment. Also, he didn't want to put pilot because they would need his supervisor contact and company. So then Frank says the manager lady was pretty inquisitive and said, oh, what type of doctor are you? What type of medicine do you practice? And he decided to say that he was a pediatrician, which to me is like, all right, very random. And as luck would have it, Frank says that he ends up meeting a real pediatrician in the building who invites him to the hospital he works at in town. And that's who supposedly gets him in to work as a supervising doctor doctor in Georgia. From Logan's book, all the records suggest that Frank was never a doctor. And there's no evidence that Frank did impersonate a doctor in Georgia, but he still pitches this as part of his story that he did successfully impersonate a doctor. But anyways... In the movie, we are at the hospital. Frank's trying to check on this friend who got hurt at the party, and we see a nurse. And this is another random casting because it's Amy Adams. And Amy Adams looks so young here. She has a mouthful of braces. She's getting yelled at. She's crying. Do you understand how dangerous this is? Do you?
2: Don't stand there
5: crying. Just nod your head and tell me you won't do it again. I'll dry up and get back to work.
7: <laughs> Dr. Blair, Dr. Blair, Dr. Sherwood Blair.
3: Hey, you okay?
6: He told me to pick up the blood, so I did. But he never told me to label it. Hey, it's okay.
3: Stop crying. <laughs> What's your name?
0: Brenda. And since Frank is such the ladies' man, he asks if she's okay and starts calming her down.
3: You like those braces?
0: I guess they're all right.
3: I got mine off last year. Boy, I hated them. They were bottoms. No, I still gotta wear my mouth guard.
6: You have really nice teeth.
3: Thank you. (laughs) You have a pretty smile. (laughs) No, I mean it. I really think those braces look good on you.
0: And then immediately just asks if she knows if they're hiring. Brenda. Yeah?
3: Do you know if they're hiring here at the hospital?
0: I'm not sure. What do you want to do? I'm a doctor. From there, we see him forging medical qualification documents. Then he's in an interview.
6: Harvard Medical School, top of your class. Southern California Children's Hospital. Well, that's a pretty impressive resume, Dr. Connors.
0: And this man's interviewing him and he's like,
6: unfortunately, uh, the only thing I need is a Emergency room supervisor for my midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Uh, Someone to babysit six interns and 20 nurses. But, um, I doubt that uh, you'd be interested in that. Well, in the past, they've
3: always let me choose my own nurses.
0: So soon we see that Frank is at work and his nurses are all lined up and Brenda is there. We also get a scene where Frank is watching medical dramas on TV, and this is supposedly how he's learning to be a doctor and learn the lingo.
7: 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours. Run fast at 60 drops a minute until we calculate the fluid requirements. What do you estimate the degree and extent of the burns can there. Second and third degree burns over about
5: 20%
4: of the body surface. Do you concur? I concur. Let's get him out to pediatrics.
1: And he's going around being this doctor, working the night shift. And in Frank's book, he says that a lot of these residents and interns that were just out of medical school really liked him because if anything ever happened, then he would just say, you, doctor, what do you think should happen? And they would tell him, I think we should do this. And he'd say, "Okay, then do it versus other head doctors that would have been in charge of these guys would be much more controlling. And we get the first instance where the movie suggests that this wasn't all harmless and there was potential potential for people to really be hurt. And thank God Frank Abagnale never really pretended to be a doctor, because I can't imagine how bad it could have gotten. He's with Amy Adams, and she's gotten her braces off, and they're making out or whatever the fuck. And he gets a page to go to the emergency room.
4: Dr. Ghanos to the EO. Dr. Ghanos to the EO. Shouldn't you go?
1: No.
3: No, no. They have a staff doctor in the emergency (laughs) room. We'll be
6: fine. (laughs) No.
1: what if he's in surgery
2: do you really
3: think i have to go
1: and he's trying to avoid it for a little bit but then he decides he's got to go and there's a kid there that's fallen off his bike and his leg is clearly broken like the bone is sticking out of the leg
3: gentlemen what uh what seems to be the problem bicycle accident fractured tibia about five inches below
2: patella hmm
1: and we quickly realize that Frank is not good with blood and he is about to barf, but he does this whole song and dance that I just explained. He looks at one of the interns and says, doctor, what do you think we should do? And they say what they think. And he says, OK, good. Go with that.
3: Dr. Harris. Yes. Do you concur? Concur with him. what, sir? With what Dr. Ashland just said. Do you do you concur? Oh, uh, well, there's was a bicycle accident. Um, the boy told us. So you concur? Concur. I think we should take an x-ray, then stitch him out, and put him in a walking cast.
6: Very good, Dr. Ashton. Very good.
1: And Frank claims that this whole scenario with a little boy that broke his leg really did happen... Another scenario that he claims really did happen and is what led him to get away from pretending to be a doctor is that he was called to the emergency room again. And it was a situation where a woman had just given birth to a baby and the baby was blue and he didn't know what to do. And a nurse saw him and clearly saw he didn't know what to do and intervened and took over. And he claims the baby was fine. Again, thank God this is not real. But it was at that point he was like, I had to leave because if something really went wrong, it was going to blow my cover.
0: So from the scene with the little boy in the hospital, we go to Frank in bed with Brenda and she's crying.
3: Listen to me. I don't care if you're a virgin. All right. Really? I can wait.
2: I'm not a virgin. I had an abortion two years ago. My parents had a friend do it. Man, my father plays golf
0: with. And then when I got better, they kicked me out of the house. And Frank offers to be her hero and go talk to her parents, and she warns him that her dad's a lawyer. And Frank says,
6: What if you were engaged to a
3: doctor? Will that change anything? What? What if I went to your parents and I spoke to your father and I asked permission to marry you?
0: And basically says that he's going to ask for her dad's permission to marry her.
1: So it's like perfect timing right when he needs to get out of this doctor scenario because it's getting a little touch and go. He can ask Brenda to marry him and they can go to her hometown in Louisiana. Right. Right.
0: So then we go to Frank and Brenda in New Orleans at Brenda's parents' house. Dr. Connors, are you Lutheran?
6: Yes, I am a Lutheran, but please call me Frank. Frank, would you like to say grace? Unless you're not comfortable.
0: And we get Brenda's mom asking if he's a Lutheran. And we get her dad, who's played by Martin Sheen, which is just
1: great, tough dad energy. I think President Bartlett every time I see Martin Sheen. But anyway, (laughs) continue. The dad asks Frank to say grace.
0: And instead of coming up with any sort of prayer on the spot, Frank decides to go back to that two mice parable and tells it again.
3: Two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned, but the second mouse, he struggled so hard that he eventually churned that cream into butter. And he walked out. Amen.
1: And Frank, like, panics. Yeah. Of all the things, he's managed to get himself onto a plane, pretend to be a doctor, but when they ask him, can you just say a prayer, this is the moment that he freaks out.
0: Right. And everyone's kind of shocked, but Brenda's mom was like,
6: Oh man, oh, that was beautiful. The mouse, he churned
0: that cream into the butter. So she's being super sweet to him, and they want to know if he knows what hospital he wants to work at because they think they're moving back to Louisiana. And they know that he's a doctor that Brenda worked with as a nurse. And he says, oh, no, I'm actually thinking of getting back into law. So this is where it comes up that Frank tells Brenda's family. Well,
3: before I went to medical school, I passed the bar in California. I practiced law for one year. Then I decided, why not try my hand at pediatrics?
6: <laughs> oh. You're just full of surprises. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my. A doctor and a lawyer. Well, I'd say that Brenda hit the jackpot. (laughs) Where did you go to law school? Uh, Berkeley.
0: (gasps) Berkeley, Berkeley. Oh, my gosh, isn't that where you went, Daddy? And as luck would have it, that's where Brenda's dad went. And so they kind of get this back and forth where you think he's going to get called on his bullshit because her dad actually knows about the professors at Berkeley.
6: Was that snake Hollingsworth still teaching there when you went through Berkeley? Hollingsworth. Yes. Grumpy old Hollingsworth, right? Let me tell you, meaner than ever. And that dog of his? Tell me, Frank what was the name of his little dog
0: but somehow he's going to get through that
6: i'm sorry um uh, the dog was dead
0: oh
6: how unfortunate
0: and it's still kind of awkward, though, at this point during dinner. But we're gonna go to a scene where Frank and Brenda's dad are having a drink in the study. And basically, Brenda's dad seems to be calling him on his bullshit and trying to get him to tell the truth.
6: Doctor? A lawyer? A Lutheran? <sighs> so, what are you, Frank? Because I think you're about to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage. And I have a right to know. Know what, sir? the truth
0: and he's like what is a man like you doing with brenda which is like one rude but two yeah brenda's lovely yeah nothing's wrong with brenda frank is the problem so then we get this bullshit line from frank that's like
3: the truth is that i'm not a doctor i'm i'm not a lawyer i'm not an airline pilot i'm i'm nothing really I'm just a kid who's in love with your daughter.
0: And the dad says no. And we think maybe the dad knows he's a con, but instead the dad's like,
6: You know what you are. You're a romantic. Men like us are nothing without the women we love.
0: <laughs> and so then he's like, okay, Frank, so are you going to ask me the question?
6: So go ahead, Frank. Don't be afraid. Ask the question you came here to ask me.
3: uh, What would I have to do to take the bar here in New
6: Orleans? (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the other question.
1: I actually am with Frank on the question that he asked, because I think the fact that he was supposed to ask the dad, can I marry your daughter, is ridiculous. So I'm totally okay with Frank asking if he can take the bar. But anyway... (laughs) But nonetheless,
0: he appears to get the blessing to marry
1: Brenda as well.
0: I'm going to go into what sort of parallels the story in real life. So Paula Parks, who we mentioned before, the Delta airline flight attendant, who Frank would randomly show up at the end of her routes dressed up like a pilot. He was stalking her. And one day he shows up at the end of her route in New Orleans. Paula's family was actually from Baton Rouge, which is like our hour and a half drive from New Orleans. So she says, you know, I'm going to see my parents at Baton Rouge. I can't go out with you. And he's like, oh, I'll give you a ride. And she figures, okay, this will be like the last time I see him. I'll make it very clear that I'm not into him, but I'll take the ride down. Being the good Southern people that they are, Paula's family invite him in for a meal and they get to know Frank and he turns on the charm. And I get so frustrated reading this in Logan's book because Paula knew he was creepy. Paula wanted him to leave and she could just see her parents and her brother being worked over by this guy. And they would ask her like, what's wrong with you that you wouldn't want to date him?
1: I mean, it was like brainwashing. Later, she says and her dad says he was so charming. It was like he was brainwashing them, which is why I think the story is important, because it shows the danger in fucking con men. It's more than just pretending to be a pilot. But anyway, sorry. Continue. Right. So several weeks later, Frank comes back to the park's residence
0: And once again, they've been very charmed by him. They invite him to come in and stay. And so he's actually living in their house with them. Paula's mom's like feeding him, taking care of him. They're hooking him up with people in the community to try to help him find a job. He says that he's interested in social work, that he has that master's degree in social work. And to add to the creepy factor, where is he sleeping? Paula Park's childhood bedroom.
1: And keep in mind, Paula does not know that he's staying there. She is a flight attendant. She's working and she just happens to call home and learn that Frank is staying there. Right. And she
0: actually like tells her parents he's not a good guy. I'm not going to come home while he's there. And like you said, at this point, he's brainwashed them so much into thinking that he's a good guy down on his luck, they're helping out. But basically, he's going to end up stealing from her family, he steals checks from her parents, he steals cash from her brother who is working as a bag boy, he stole from the brother's savings account, he stole from another family business in Baton Rouge. And there are police records to back this up. That's the thing about Logan's book. It's not just a different narrative. He did the deep research. And so there's actual proof that Frank got in trouble with the law in Baton Rouge because he was stealing from individuals and small family businesses.
1: And the other thing about these documents that are in Alan C. Logan's book is it shows that during the time that Frank claims that he was pretending to be a doctor and then a lawyer, that he was not because he was in Louisiana screwing these people over. And this leads into Frank's third job that he claims that he had that he did not really have. And that is him being a lawyer. So in the movie, Frank is now engaged to Brenda and we see him going into the room to take the bar exam. And ultimately, it's assumed that he passed because we see him on his first day of work at the U.S. Attorney's Office and he's being shown his new office.
6: You'll be working under Philip Rigby in corporate law. Why don't you settle in, organize your desk? Thank you. We're having lunch at 1230 with the Attorney General and Governor McKitton himself. Governor? Did we spell it right? Sure did. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Welcome aboard.
1: And they again show him watching TV to learn how to be a lawyer, which I appreciate so much because TV shows are never correct.
5: Look at this photograph, Mr. Stewart. It's a
6: photograph of Prentice York where they found him dead. Now, here is an enlargement of part of that photograph. (laughs)
1: And it shows him in court trying to basically mimic the TV show.
3: This is a photograph of the defendant's signature on a canceled check. Now, here is an enlargement of that same signature, which matches the signature on the letters that he wrote to Mrs. Simon, which discussed the possibility of defrauding the great state of Louisiana. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is irrefutable evidence that the defendant is, in fact, lying.
1: And the judge just stops him and is like, what the hell is wrong with you?
6: Mr. Connors, this is a preliminary hearing. There is no defendant. There is no jury. It's just me.
4: Son, what in the hell is wrong
1: with you? And I really appreciated Steven Spielberg just saying, yeah, I get it. We're never correct. (laughs) But the real Frank claims that he litigated in 30 different cases. And Alan C. Logan points out that Frank claims that he prosecuted a bunch of people under a law that does not exist, a type of theft law that's not real. And one of the ways that Alan C. Logan also proved that Frank never pretended to be a lawyer, he was never hired by the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he never took the bar, was that the Louisiana State Bar got really pissed later in the 70s when Frank was going on this tour saying that he was pretending to be a lawyer. And so they actually did their own investigation, and they went through every single person that would have taken the bar during the time that Frank claimed he did. And they went past that point and before that point to make sure that they wouldn't miss him. And they vetted every single person and followed up with every single person that took the bar. And Frank was not one of them. He did not take the bar in Louisiana. And later, one of the people that wrote a smaller article that called Frank out on his bullshit tried to interview Frank. And some of the questions that were asked were things like, who was your boss? And when Frank was trying to say the U.S. attorney's name, he couldn't pronounce it correctly. He did not know where the office was in the building. And the other thing is, the person that worked at the U.S. attorney's office was like, I never hired this guy. I never hired a guy named Frank Abagnale, and I never hired a guy under a different name. Also, he failed to realize that, of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to keep a record of past employees and he's not on there under any name. But in the movie, at least, Frank seems to be doing pretty well. He's with Brenda and her family and he seems to really enjoy the fact that he's settling down and he wants to be with them.
0: Right. And we get the sense that Frank is finally getting that happy family life that he's been seeking throughout the movie and that he doesn't want to be on the run. So that takes us to another Christmas Eve call with Carl.
4: This is Ann. Ready?
6: Hello, Carl. Merry Christmas.
4: Why are you, Dr. Connors? Carl, I haven't
6: been
5: Dr. Connors for months now.
0: Carl picks up the phone and there's two other agents who are also listening and Frank says,
3: I want it to be over. I'm getting married.
4: You know, I'm settling down. You've stolen almost four million dollars. You think we can just call that a wedding? Present? No, this isn't something you get to walk away from, Frank.
3: I want to call a truce.
4: No truce. You will be caught. You will go to prison. Where did you think this was going?
3: Please leave me alone, Carl. Please.
4: I'm getting close, huh?" You're scared because I'm getting close. I know you.
0: And Frank tells Carl that he's getting married. And that tips Carl and his team off because they realize he can't change his name from what Brenda thinks his name is. Because when he was supposedly working at the hospital or when he was working at the hospital in the movie, he went by Frank Connors. So they start looking for engagement announcements in the South for someone named Frank Connors.
1: And in reality, while Frank was living with the Parks family, Paula's family, he was also dating her cousin. So these scenes where we see Frank becoming a part of a family and kind of developing a relationship, they're not real in the sense of this movie or how Frank's biography says they happened. But he was, in a way, becoming a part of the family and community, despite the fact that he fully planned to con them anyway. And in the next scene, we see that Brenda's parents are throwing Frank and Brenda an engagement party, and it's at their house. And while they are having the party, Carl and his team come to the house. And Frank is going upstairs to use the restroom, and he sees them right as he goes upstairs. And Carl comes in and speaks to Brenda's parents. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm Roger Strong. I'm
6: Carl Hanready, FBI. This
4: is Edith Semberski and Fox. No, no, no. Sorry to crash your party, sir. Not at all.
6: What can I do for you? It's not too much trouble. I'd like to meet the groom. Is there
1: a problem? And Frank knows that he's got to go. Frank, can you hold all these?
2: Yeah, come here. They're checks. They're from my dad's friends. They're for us so we can kind of do our thing. What do you do?
1: What's wrong? We have to leave. So for some reason, Frank thinks it's a good idea after he sees Carl and realizes he needs to go on the run to grab Brenda, bring her into the bedroom and explain to her that his real name is not Frank Connors as he pulls out a suitcase full of cash.
3: You love me, right? Yeah. I mean, you love me no matter what. Yeah. I mean, you love me whether I was sick or whether I was poor, even if I had a different name.
2: Frank, where'd you get all that money?
3: Brenda, listen, a name, right? A name, it doesn't matter. My name is Frank Connors, right? That's who I am yeah. with you, but, but we, we all have secrets. You know, sometimes when I travel, I use the name Frank Taylor, That that's my secret. Frank
1: Taylor.
3: Yeah, Frank Taylor, you know, Frank Black, you know. Frank it, Black? Yeah, it doesn't matter.
1: Why are you saying all this? And tells her that he's been on the run for, in the movie at least, several years.
3: I don't want to lie to you anymore, all right? I'm not a doctor. I never went to medical school. I'm not a lawyer or a Harvard graduate or a Lutheran. I ran away from home a year and a half ago when I was 16.
1: Brian. Brian. You're not a Lutheran? And that he wants her to meet him at the Miami airport in two days at 10. And he just jumps out the window and he's gone because the FBI certainly wouldn't think, oh, our guy might run and we should surround the house if we're going to pick him up. (laughs) And Brenda is just like, what? The, The biggest shock to her is that he's not a Lutheran. And once again, Carl comes barreling through the bedroom door and he's got his gun out because this is a violent crime where a gun is necessary. (laughs) Brenda is standing in the corner shocked and Frank is nowhere to be seen. And then we jump to two days later at the International Airport in Miami and Frank has driven up to the airport and he's looking to see if Brenda is going to show up. And she does. She shows up. But then Frank immediately sees that she is not alone. There are clearly FBI agents in cars, walking around. They are waiting for him to come up to her. And he knows that she has told them what he told her. So he has no choice but to drive off and no show on Brenda. And at this point, Carl has got a fucking entourage with him. Like, he went from having the two guys a part of his team as punishment to now he's got a ton of people waiting for Frank to pick him up.
4: This guy's a no-show. He must have gotten
5: wise. He to was us. tipped.
4: He's not here today. He'll be tomorrow. We get him before he leaves the country. He doesn't have a passport. The last six months, he's going to have it in Berkeley. I'm betting he can get a passport. So we have all our men waiting for him here in Miami International. He's used it before. He knows the layout. I'll talk to Miami police. They've offered us 50 uniformed cops and two shifts of 25. With our guys, that's almost 100 men in one airport.
1: Again, none of this is true, but it makes for a good movie. What actually happened was Frank finally gets caught with this whole con scheme that he has with Paul's family. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, not only was he stealing checks and cash from the Parkses, but he was also tricking this pastor into thinking that he had a master's in social work. And it all kind of came to a head. And both the Parkses and this reverend contacted the police and they arrested Frank and they charged him with theft for all these checks. And he also had that stolen car that I mentioned earlier that he was driving Paul around in and he ultimately is taken to court and he begs for mercy in front of this judge and he somehow managed to still even further trick this pastor and the pastor vouched for him and said he would help him and that he needed psychological help and that he shouldn't go to jail because he did not want to go to prison in Louisiana. It was a really bad prison. And so the judge does, in fact, have mercy on him and gives him probation and says that he is to report to the psychiatric hospital within 30 days and he would be on And nowadays, they would just send you directly from custody in jail to the hospital, but they release Frank. And of course, he does not report to this hospital and he flies out of the US somehow and he ends up in Sweden. But in the movie, the next move that Frank makes is he's got to get out of the U.S. He's got to get on a plane somehow. So what he does is he starts calling around to universities in the area.
3: Yes, this is uh, Frank Roberts. And I'm letting all the universities in the area know that Pan Am will be initiating a new recruiting program this year. i be stopping by again campus tomorrow morning.
1: He says that he is a Pan Am pilot and he is looking for some people to recruit into their new training program. It's a summer program where they will basically go on a European tour with him for publicity. And then once they graduate after that summer, then they can come back and train to actually be stewardesses or flight attendants.
3: At the end of the day, I'll be choosing eight young ladies to be a part of... A stewardess flight crew program. Now, these eight young ladies will accompany me on a two-month public relations tour through Europe. And they will discover firsthand what it takes to be a Pan-American stewardess.
1: And in the movie, he actually does interview a bunch of students and he ultimately announces who he's going to take with him and it's a bunch of pretty girls that he's going to take with him to Europe. Mm-hmm. And at this point in the movie, if you haven't seen it, you're kind of like, what's he doing? What is this going to do? I feel like this is just going to draw more attention. But what ends up happening is Frank gets all these girls uniforms and he gets himself a pilot's uniform. He has them brought up in a big old car and they all walk into the airport together and Frank is essentially hidden and surrounded by all of these pretty flight attendants. And we are again to think that the FBI is a bunch of idiots and that they are just completely hypnotized by girls because literally in the movie and according to Frank's book, they walk straight through the airport, straight onto a plane, and they are off to Europe. And then the book, Frank talks about how he toured on a bus with these girls through Europe. He would pay them with these fake checks and he would immediately cash them for them. He wouldn't let them just keep the checks. And if they wanted to send money home, then he would say, let me cash it and I will send it home for them. And then eventually, after so many months, he just said, "Okay, I'm going to put you on a plane and send you back and I'll be in touch about your training after you graduate college. And then he just never got in touch with them again. The reality is he tried to pull this stunt at a couple of places in Arizona. And immediately when he tried to do this, the administration people at these universities knew he was a fraud. He didn't have enough information. And there was actually one situation where one of the people interested in this program was actually a male. He was a guy that had a pilot's license, and he ultimately wanted to work for Pan Am as a pilot once he graduated. And when he came up and started talking to Frank about it and asking him different stuff about being a pilot, Frank didn't know what to say and the guy figured out pretty quickly he was a fraud he wasn't real and this could not be a real recruiter but in the movie we're gonna go to seven months later yeah so we get on-screen text that
0: tells us that seven months later and carl is in his boss's office showing him a bunch of payroll Am checks that have been cashed south america
4: australia singapore egypt the kid's gone completely out of control why wasn't i called Nobody was called, sir.
5: The banks didn't know what was happening till last week.
0: As Carl's laying out the checks, he's explaining that it's international now and he's making real checks. And so Carl wants to go to Europe.
4: They didn't call because it's not counterfeiting. It's something else. Well, what is he doing? He's making real checks, sir. These are so perfect, the airline didn't know the difference. Last check was cashed in Madrid a week ago. My guess is he's still there. We have to leave now, sir, today. Go where? Spain. You wanna go to Spain? Eventually, he's gotta go back to where the checks were printed. I think that's why he's moving back to Europe. Look at the map, sir. He's making a circle. He's running out of checks. I know it's it's a long shot, sir, but if we could track him from Madrid, Sarah, we can still catch him.
0: And Carl's boss is like, You've let him get away twice now. I'm not going to go pay for you to go around Europe without knowing where he is. And so Carl starts doing his research, starts asking guys who are experts in checks if they know anywhere in Europe that people print checks like this.
6: There's no bleeding. Nobody does work like
5: this in the States. Nobody but us. Where was it printed? It was printed on a monster. (laughs) A monster. A a Heidelberg, an Istra. Heidelberg. A dinosaur, four colors. You can smell the weight. Two tons, without the ink.
4: Where do they do printing like this? Germany, Great
7: Britain. France.
0: France. France! And then that makes a light bulb go off in Carl's head because he remembers, oh, wait, his mom was from France. France. Frank's mother said the name of a village in France where they didn't have Sarah Lee, the village where she met Frank's father. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, I don't remember. Uh... It
4: started with an M. It was a uh, ma or something. Ma. Uh, Mr. Fox? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Question, you met your husband during the war? Answer, yes, I lived in a very small village in France, a kind yeah, of place right. where they never heard of Sarah right. Lee. Tell me you wrote down the name of the village, Mr. Fox.
0: Not Rashad. Magically, they do find the page where we find out that the mom is from Mount Richard, and that is where checks like this have been known to come from.
1: What do you think the likelihood is that you hold on to a little bitty notebook for seven months with the town that you are never going to visit in? <laughs> Not high at all. They managed to have it. -hmm. So, from there, with this miracle notebook, Carl goes to France, to this little town where these checks were possibly made. And when we get there, Carl is just in the city center. It is completely empty, it is dark. There's a church and there's an empty building. And Carl walks into the empty building. And what do you know? It is the exact place where these checks are being made. And who is there but Frank? There was no context as how they figured out this was there or how Carl got there. He's just there. So I guess, oh, the checks might be made in France was enough information for his boss to be like, all right, go to Europe. And this did not actually happen. What happens is Frank goes to Sweden and he's around there for a little bit and he is writing some bad checks while he's there. He ends up going to France. He steals a car, then drives back to Sweden. Tries to sell the car and he takes the money from this person and disappears again while still writing a bunch of bad checks and ends up taking a bunch of money from a lot of different people. He was on the run in Sweden for about two weeks, not seven months, before he was caught and arrested. And in the movie, we see Frank just making an insane amount of checks in the middle of the night, apparently. He's almost manic. Oh!
2: Merry
3: Christmas! How is it that we're always talking on Christmas, Paul? Every Christmas,
1: I'm talking to you! Put your shirt on, (laughs) Frank. You're under arrest. Hey, are you hungry? Do you want some beans? they got the best french beans here and we find out in this moment not only has carl managed to find frank but that he has found him on christmas eve and carl is trying to tell frank we've got you surrounded you need to come out with me now and frank does not believe him frank is literally going to run away from him and actually says you're gonna have to catch me for me to go with you all right
7: all
2: right
4: well there's no windows here I'm gonna take a look out the front door. No, no. I told him I'd walk out first and give a signal. Here, you can put these on yourself. Oh, I can't do
3: that. I can't do that. You know why? Because I think you're full of shit. I don't think there's anyone else out there. I think, I think it's just me and you. That's right. I think it's just me and you. And you know what? you are going to have to catch myself.
1: And Carl keeps telling him, if you run out of the building, there are people out there. They are going to shoot you. I've instructed them that I will come out first, and then you will follow me handcuffed. And it's kind of this moment where Frank has to decide, is he himself being conned by Carl, or is Carl telling him the truth? Don't make a mistake.
3: That's good. That's good, Carl, you know. Keep pushing that lie. Keep pushing it. Keep pushing until you make it true. They're going to kill you
4: walk out that door, they're going to kill you. Is that the truth?
2: Yeah.
1: And they've kind of developed this relationship throughout the movie and Frank chooses to believe Carl and he handcuffs himself and he goes with them outside. And as they walk out, you realize, like we saw earlier, there's nobody surrounding this building. It's completely empty. And Frank looks at him and he's like, That was
6: really good, Carl.
1: But then promptly after that, the French police come driving up and they take Frank away from Carl. And clearly, whatever Carl had planned, he did not plan for the French police to take Frank away from him at that moment because chaos just ensues. Just like the chaos we saw at the beginning of the movie where Carl was talking to the French police and nobody could understand each other. They can't understand each other now. And they're taking Frank away. And this is bringing us full circle back to that moment at the beginning of the movie where we saw Frank in that shitty French jail. It was from this arrest that we wind up back at that French jail where Carl had to come back and extradite him back to the U.S.
0: And so now we're going to see Carl and Frank on a plane. They're headed back to the United States. And Frank tells Carl, you have to remember to let me call my
3: father when we land. I I just want to talk to him before he sees me on
4: television or something like that.
0: And Carl kind of makes a weird face and scoots over and tells him,
4: Frank, your father is dead. I'm sorry. I didn't want to say anything until we got closer to home. He. He he fell down some steps at Grand Central Station trying to catch a train. I didn't want to be the one to tell him.
2: You're lying, right?
3: You said I could talk to him. Carl, who who are you to say something like that, huh? I to say something like that you said i could talk to. Him.
0: and frank is really upset he said that carl told him that he'd be able to talk to his dad that he lied to him he starts crying he said he's gonna be sick and he runs to the bathroom but then we see some flight attendants yelling at the fbi agents who are waiting outside the bathroom that they have to take their seats because the plane's landing you'll have to take your seats, sir i've told you twice we're landing Sorry, thank you. all of you frank come on now
4: Frank? We're landing in six minutes. All of you need to be in your seats. Frank, open the door.
0: Frank! Frank won't open the door and they break into the bathroom and it appears that he has been able to crawl out from under the toilet and we look out the airplane window and Frank jumps out of the cargo hold as they're landing and starts running away. This escaped through the toilet. Okay. When the movie came out, aeronautical engineers were like, that's impossible to escape from a toilet. And so Frank says, oh, that was Spielberg made that up for the movie. But the problem with that is Frank told lots of people during his original speaking gigs back in the 80s. That is how he escaped one time through moving the toilet and going out the bottom of the plane. He also wrote it in his book. So it's just
1: another little I'm so over Frank at this point. Like, I am so over Frank. You know how I feel about Frank? I feel how Tom Hanks feels about Frank. Go fuck yourself. Yeah.
0: And it's just so infuriating that then whenever he gets caught in a lie, he just says, oh, no, that's what this famous person said happened. That's not what I said.
1: Or he tries to write it off as embarrassment. Like, oh, all of these institutions will not admit that I did this because they're embarrassed. They've got records, dude. They have to write things down. Your name would be in this stuff if you were an employee, whether you were a real doctor or lawyer or not. Sorry, I'm going on a tangent.
0: No, I'm all for
1: it. Uh, but so,
0: after he supposedly jumps out of the airplane toilet, we get him running all the way to his mom's new house, which I'm like, you just know how to run there from the airport. All right. So he's run all the way to her house and he's watching through the window and there's a little girl inside, and he's tapping on the window back and forth to her. Hello.
7: we'll find it hard to sleep tonight.
0: What's your name? They know that Where's your mommy? And she points to his mom, and you just see his heart sink. And it's at this point that Carl and the FBI drive up, and Frank is just ready to go because his family hopes and dreams have been completely quashed by mom's new family. Give me in the cough, please. Give me in
2: the cough.
1: Yeah. His dad's dead, his mom's married and forgotten about him, and his family that he was trying to do all this for is never going to happen. By the way, both parents tried to support him through all of his antics, and nobody Mm -hmm. ever fucking forgot him. So fuck you, Frank. (laughs) And basically, after Frank's world has collapsed, he is officially given up. We see him walking down a hallway in a prison, and we get a voiceover of a judge sentencing him. Taking into account the gravity of these crimes your history of bold and elusive behavior and your complete lack of respect for the laws of
5: the United States, I have no choice but to ignore your request to be treated as a minor and sentence you to 12 years in Atlanta's maximum security prison and recommend strongly that you be kept in isolation for the entirety of that sentence.
1: Several things to point out here. Number one, (laughs) Frank actually was an adult when he was finally caught for writing shitty checks. Next thing is, why the hell would you put someone in isolation for financial fraud? That didn't happen. And Frank's book is crazy. He tries to say that he escaped from this Atlanta prison and just walked away. The end of the book is him walking away. There is no explanation if he ever got caught again or what happened. But Mm -hmm. he never escaped from this prison. There was an instance where he was in a county jail before all this happened, and he managed to walk out... Yeah, I know that
0: he like, was in a county jail and they like admitted that they had had some people escape from there, but I don't know that it's ever been verified that it was him.
1: Yeah. But the next part yeah. also did not happen, but I'm going to leave that to Grace to talk about because I've about had it.
0: So uh, the screen goes black, and we open up to another scene, and it's one year later. And don't you know, it's Christmas Eve again, and Carl has come to visit Frank in prison. It seems like they've maintained their little friendship, and Carl tells Frank about a new case he's working on.
4: It's a paper hanger who's working his way through Minnesota. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. He's driving us crazy. You got any of the checks? Yeah, yeah, I got a, a counterfeit he drew on. Great leg savings and loan. See, he's just using a stencil machine in an underwood. Yeah, to tell teller at the bank. Say again?
3: It, it, it's definitely a teller, Carl. I mean, banks, they always use hand stamps for the dates, see? They get used over and over again, so you always get worn out.
0: Carl says thanks, and then the next time they visit again, Carl's boss is with them. And the FBI asks Frank if he'll look at a check and tell them what he thinks.
4: I'd like you to take a look at something for me. Tell me what you think. <clears throat> That's a fake. How well, do you know you haven't looked
3: at it? Well, there's no perforated edge, right? I mean, this this check was hand cut, and not fed. Yeah, paper's double bonded. Much too heavy to be a bank check.
0: Frank does so, and then this turns into a job offer with the FBI's financial crime unit. Frank is a little smartass and says that he already has a job. I already got a job here. You know,
5: I uh, deliver the mail.
4: Frank, we have the power to take you out of prison. You'd be placed in the custody of the FBI where you'd serve out the remainder of your sentence as an employee of the federal government.
0: And basically it's an offer he can't refuse so from there we go to frank's supposed first day of work at the fbi in the movie this is significant because it's one of the first jobs where he can use his own name right and that he's using his powers for good but still when he gets in the office it seems kind of boring and all the investigators who've been working to catch him are in this office so there's some animosity there and he asked carl how long do i have to work here
4: 8.15 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. 45 minutes for lunch. No. I mean, how long? Every day. Every day, Frank, till we let you
0: go. And so even though he's out of prison, he's still trapped. He's in this one place and he doesn't have power over his own life anymore.
1: And his office is just flooded with papers. It's. I, I think I would rather be in prison than be in that office, to be honest. <laughs> that's not true. I don't want to go to prison. Please don't yell at me. (laughs) But he does have a lot of files on his desk. Yeah. And when he's outside of work, you see him walking down the street getting groceries one day. And I was immediately thinking, okay, this guy has escaped so many times. Why the fuck is nobody with him when he's getting these groceries? And that was actually a good question because he looks in the window at a shopping store, the shopping store. He looks in a window at a clothing (laughs) store. And what is there but a pilot's uniform on a mannequin? And of course, immediately in the very next scene, we see Frank and he is at the airport in that uniform and he is walking down the hallway like he's about to get on a plane and he's about to go to the gate when who but Carl comes up from behind and says,
4: You go back to Europe, you're going to die in Pepinion prison. Try to run here in the States. We'll send you back to Atlanta for 50 years. I know that. It's been four years trying to arrange your release to convince my bosses at the FBI and the Attorney General of the United States, you wouldn't run.
1: And this conversation and interaction ends with Carl telling Frank.
4: I'm going to let you fly tonight, Frank. I'm not even going to try to stop you. because I know you'll be back on Monday. Yeah. How do you know I'll come back? <laughs> Look, Frank, nobody's chasing you.
1: And we cut to the next Monday morning and it is almost 10 o'clock and Frank is not there. And Carl is looking at the clock, very worried. And we see him start to give a presentation on a new case. Frank is still not showing up. Then when he's almost done with the presentation and he's looking at a check with a magnifying glass, you see someone walk up and grab the little magnifying glass and say, can I take a look? And they both sit down and are looking at this fake check and deciding how this person did this and who possibly did it and how they can catch him. And it's clearly the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And it ends with Carl asking Frank, how did you do it, Frank?
4: How did you cheat on the bar exam in Louisiana?
1: Because he's been asking Frank this question every time we flash to Frank and Carl after Frank's gotten arrested and Frank won't answer him. And Carl is under the impression he's cheated. And finally, Frank tells him.
3: I didn't cheat. I studied for two weeks and I passed.
1: To which I almost (laughs) threw my TV out the window for several reasons. Number one, no way you could pass that thing in two weeks. I studied for 12 hours a day for three fucking months for the Texas exam. Grace took two bar exams. So she can tell you all about that. Yeah, same type of thing. And the other thing is, even in his lie, he Mm -hmm. took it three times, which actually further proved that Frank could not have taken the bar exam because he says that he stayed in Louisiana pretending to be a lawyer for one year. And the bar exam is given every six months. So that doesn't add up. But right. we end the movie with some on-screen text talking about how Frank has been married for 26 years, he has 3 sons and lives a quiet life since his release from prison in 1974, he's helped the FBI capture some of the world's most elusive check forgers and counterfeiters and is considered one of the foremost authorities on bank fraud and forgery. It also says that Frank designed many of the secure checks that banks and Fortune 500 companies use every day. And these companies save millions of dollars a year because of Frank. And to top it all off, Frank and Carl remain good friends to this day. It's all fucking lies. Frank is a lying liar who lies. (laughs) He has been married for quite a while, but he cheated on the wife all throughout his little tour giving these speeches. We cannot confirm or deny that Frank worked for the FBI.
0: Yeah, so what we can say is that in Logan's book, he talks about an FBI agent who Frank used as a reference to his claims. And the FBI agent kind of like confirm or denied that anybody has done specific work for the FBI. But he had an immediate reaction that was like, I don't know that guy and I don't know how everybody keeps getting
1: my number. <laughs> <laughs> this poor man. Like, I don't know a guy yeah, like, named a- Frank. I didn't work with him.
0: You already have like this stressful job and then you're getting this fucking con artist reference calls all the time. And then same with these Fortune 500 companies. He claimed to like work as a consultant for Chase Bank and that they paid him millions of dollars. And whenever people would actually do the fact check and call these companies, they would say, no, there was one company where he put on a little half day seminar. Neiman Marcus from
1: Dallas. Yes,
0: Neiman Marcus in Dallas. And they were very clear, like, no, he never worked for us. And we knew more about the security stuff than what he had to say that day. It is true that Frank has made tons and tons of money off of telling this story, writing a book about this story, getting Steven Spielberg to make a movie about this story, and he's still getting speaking engagements where he's paid $20,000 for like one hour talk. So
1: yeah, I didn't see a price on it. But I saw an article that was from 2020 that was saying that he was going to speak at a school. So it's been as recent as that. And that is pretty much how the movie ends. I still love this movie, despite the fact that Frank is a fuckboy. Yeah. And this movie, I just realized, it opened on Christmas Day in 2002. Great Christmas movie. That would be a fun one to go see. Some reactions to the movie... It got generally favorable reviews. There was a lot of praise for Leonardo DiCaprio and his performance. I did find it interesting that a lot of people seem to suggest that they did not think that this was Steven Spielberg's best movie, but Mm. that Leonardo DiCaprio's performance made up for it. Okay. Okay. There was one negative review by a guy from Rolling Stone named Peter Traverse, and he said that he considered the film to be bogged down and basically it went on too long. But I didn't think that. it is long, but it didn't feel long to me as I was watching it. And I agree with the idea that it's just really easy to watch and fun, despite the fact, again, that it is not real. And I obviously will watch it with a different perspective now. Yeah. Some awards that it got, Christopher Walken was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards, and he also won a BAFTA Award in the same category. John Williams was nominated for Best Original Score at both the Academy Awards and the BAFTA Awards, and he received a Grammy nomination. And the film was also nominated at the BAFTA Awards for Best Costume Design and Best Adapted Screenplay. And Leo was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor that year. As far as Frank's reaction to the movie, he claims to not have been involved in the making of the movie, but Leonardo DiCaprio did speak to him and he's quoted in Logan's book as talking to him and saying that he was very charismatic. And Frank says that he is just honored that Steven Spielberg made this movie inspired by his life. And it's important to understand that it is just a movie, not a biographical documentary. I'm guessing that's after the toilet scandal on the airplane came out. (laughs) However, I will say that DreamWorks, the company that made the movie, they were very sure to put on all of the publicity for it inspired by a true story instead of based on or something like that because they had just recently had some contracts controversy surrounding A Beautiful Mind and the hurricane, both of which deviated from the actual history. So they were like, we're not touching this and saying that it is all actually true. Although again, I'm just wondering if anybody thought maybe we should fact check some stuff (laughs) because apparently nobody did. And then in July 2009, a musical adaptation of Catch Me If You Can premiered in Seattle, Washington, and then that later opened on Broadway in 2011. And finally, it was parodied in an episode of The Simpsons titled Catch Him If You Can that was released on April 25th, 2004.
0: Which means Frank got all this money off the story and still never paid back those people that he scammed.
1: Yes, Frank is still a fuckface, And that is the story and the movie. Catch me if you can. What are we doing next week? Next time we're doing Drew Peterson, Untouchable. I'm excited for this one because it's Rob Lowe and I love him so much. So this is going to be really interesting seeing him as a bad guy and I'm ready for it. Our first Lifetime movie, guys. Thank you so much, guys. We love you. Stay safe. And we'll see you later. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. If you would like to make a request, you can do so by sending us a DM through any of our social media accounts. We are at Crime Scenes Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also make a movie request on our website, www.CrimeScenesPodcast.com.
0: Okay, say something.
1: Hello? So Carl comes... So Frank... So Frank... But Frank... And and dark
2: and
1: dark. Frank, read the room. Come on, you can do this. Um. So okay. So so. But so. And it's like we're to assume that anytime Frank reads, women just want to fuck him. I don't know. Um. I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> Wait, is it recording me? Hello. son of a bitch okay that was long
0: that was long